If my friend dies and their finger falls off, like, I'm not going to be, like, walking around with that finger being like, ah, yes, you know, my good friend Liz helps me be not scared of the dark. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books, or an adaptation of one, with a special guest. This month we're watching The Watch, um, and I've tried to come up with a pun or joke about this, but um, I think that's enough. That's That'll, that'll do. <laughs> uh, and our two guests are writer, gentleman, adventurer, Fury. Welcome, Fury. Thanks for having me. And writer and deputy editor, arts and culture for the conversation, Patrick Lenton. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. Oh, we don't often have two guests, so it's a bit of a joy. And today it's great. We've got a combo of returning guests in you, Fury, and a brand new guest in you, Patrick. So welcome. Welcome, both of you. Patrick, let's start with you because you haven't been on the podcast before. Are you a Pratchett fan? Um, I am not a learned Pratchett fan at all. I'm, I have a very passing familiarity with his canon. I've read a couple of books, uh, most of them when I was, uh, quite young and then only a couple since being an adult. Uh, I think the most recent one I read was Guards, Guards. Oh, just handy. Yeah, very appropriate. <laughs> mm. Uh, but this is good. We did want to have someone whose approach would not be super familiarity. But you've spent quite a bit of time in your career writing about television and pop culture because one of your previous jobs, you were working at Junkie. That's right. Um, as the various editors and various writers of, uh, of pop culture entertainment. So watching a new TV show and then having to immediately come up with a take and some sort of idea of what this means is like one of the useless skills that I have. <laughs> You still use that skill mm. in your newsletter. Um, what, what's the title? All the heterosexual nonsense I was forced to endure whilst watching The Bachelor? Is yes, that- that's yeah. right. Although we are starting Married at First Sight tomorrow. So um, oh, no. I'm prepared to learn a whole new level of heterosexual nonsense. Look, I'd love to say that it doesn't really represent heterosexuals, but that would be a lie. And I'm ashamed. <laughs> I remember you fondly. <laughs> Yeah, good luck. Good luck luck to you and all who sail with you. Um, And Fury, welcome back. Thank you for having me again, once again. Um, You've you've had heaps of stuff going on since we last saw you. Uh, You've done, you you toured around the country with a live show. You um, published your comic. I think think maybe you'd just done that when we last spoke to you on the podcast. Wow, it's been a while then. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's what's been happening with you? I bought a house, man. Just outside of Dalesford, and uh, that's been my life for like the past year. It's a really old, uh, elderly house, 
and uh, it hasn't had anything updated in it since 1954 when it was built. Um, so yeah, just renovating pretty much, which is incredibly boring. I, I, I say this because um, uh, this is what I thought of everyone else who, when they bought a house and started renovated, talked about it. I would be like, oh God, when will this person shut up? So I assume that, assume that other people are the same, which is why I don't really talk about it a lot. But so yeah, that's what I've been doing. And um, yeah, and oh, and I uh, wrote my first episode of television um, recently, this year, last year, last year. It is 2022. And yeah, that's very exciting. That is very exciting. Well, we'll hear more about that at the end, I think, because we want to know what that is and when we can expect to see it. But we were discussing an entire TV show, so let's get into it. And let's begin, as we traditionally do, with a reading of the blurb. And for this purpose, I did buy a copy of The Watch on DVD. Is the W just two Vs? The Vodge? I mean, that's the that's the official logo that appears in the show, and it does look a bit like two Vs mm. joined together, yeah. Here's the blurb from the DVD. The Watch follows an unlikely group of misfits, the City Watch, who are forced to find the guts to save the world, surprising even themselves in the process. The comedic yet thrilling eight-part series pits trolls, werewolves, wizards, and other improbable heroes against an evil plot to resurrect a great dragon, which would lead to the destruction of life as they know it. From lead writer and executive producer Simon Allen, the modern and inclusive series is inspired by the characters created by Sir Terry Pratchett's famous Discworld novels. The art of writing blurbs for DVDs in particular is quite different to the art of writing them for books, I feel. There's a great one for black books, um, the, the box set that I bought like, what, 15 years ago, and it's written by Dylan Moran, and it's just a whole page about some sci-fi show set on something called Flimf G, which he's clearly like made up, and it just goes for the entire thing and doesn't mention the sh- like his show at all. <laughs> I mean, I think anyone buying that, they know what they're getting into. Yeah. Although it's very um, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place vibes. <laughs> <laughs> which may or may not come up during the rest of this conversation. I don't know. But The Watch, this is what we're discussing. It's an eight-part series made by BBC America... We're going to consistently get this wrong throughout this episode, so just to set things straight, The Watch was not made by BBC America, but by BBC Studios for BBC America. BBC America is an American cable television network co-owned by BBC Studios and American television company AMC Networks. BBC Studios is the subsidiary of the BBC responsible for television production and was formed in 2015 through an amalgamation of the corporation's previously separate production departments, comedy, drama, and so on. Yes, this is yet another complication on the watcher's rocky journey between 2011 and getting to the screen in 2021. They definitely had an American audience in mind when making it for BBC America though, and notably the first place you could watch the watch was on AMC+, AMC's own streaming service It was only launched in June 2020, so presumably someone from AMC had some kind of sign-off as well as the BBC's. Just in case you haven't seen it, I know a lot of our listeners have not watched it um, Mm -hmm. for various reasons, either because they've been unable to, it hasn't actually been released in that many places in the world, America, Australia and the UK, more or less the only ones, I think. I don't think it's had a wide distribution outside of those countries, Uh, so you may not have seen it, and... 
we're going to spoil the whole season. There's not, <laughs> we're not going to hold back. Um, but we are going to try because we haven't covered all of the books that it draws from. We're going to try not to spoil those too much because there's still a few of them that we haven't read mm. for the podcast yet. Um, but we will mention a couple of little things from them that are not too big, just as a side note. But this is the watch and it's eight episodes. They're about, they're a TV hour. So they're like 42, 43 minutes. But sometimes they feel longer. Mm. <laughs> but they start with episode one, which has the great title, A Near Vimes Experience. I thought some of the titles I thought were pretty great. And then some of them were very pedestrian. Is that from one of the books? I think that might actually be in one of the books. Vimes didn't have a near-death experience. Death had a near-Vimes experience mm. or something, something yeah, along those lines. And it might, or maybe it wasn't Vimes. I don't know. Um, and the official synopsis for this first episode is Captain Sam Vimes' life in the City Watch is changed forever when a figure from his past returns to ank more pork. <laughs> I don't know. Those one-line synopses, it's interesting what they choose to pull out from each episode. Because that's not the key thing. I mean, I... Straight up, um, I want to start by saying if we hadn't been doing this podcast, I don't think I'd have pushed through episode one because I thought it was atrocious. Mm. I spent the whole time yelling. Don't regularly yell at um, my TV while I'm watching it because it can't hear me and respond. But I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to have to sit through like seven more hours of this. Mm. I'm going to, I could be doing so many other things with my one and beautiful life, but it's going to be seven more hours of this. And it did, I think, get better, or I got desensitized. Um, mm. I'm not sure which it is. I'm sure we'll tease that out across the show. But I think because I can't remember that much detail of it other than hating it because it was an aggressive amount of exposition. Um, if you've read the books, it's trying to reconcile the characters in your head with the characters as they're being portrayed on the screen. I'm really keen to hear what Patrick thinks of it as like, coming into it without so much of that. But I also just thought it was just a pretty bad hour of television mm. yeah it's it's interesting watching this as someone who's looked at it from the other end and uh, personally i think that the point of failure here is that there were only eight episodes and so in the first hour they crammed a giant plot line like you really should have in, in, introduced caster at the end at the very end of the first episode you know, mm. built up all of this thing, built up Vimes' tension, who he is, why he's drinking. And then at the very end, Custer turns up and that's like a what moment, but they don't, they like right, right in there. And then they just like push through. So that's, that whole thing could have been two or three episodes, but I suspect mm. that I suspect a lot of the decisions that were made in this show as I was watching it are budget decisions. So they didn't want more than eight episodes. Like, um, killing off characters, um, and mm. the, the way that they, the, the way that they managed to limit the CGI was very clever. Um, mm. I thought, I, yeah. like, I'm looking at this from multiple different angles, and one of them is from the budget angle, and they've made a lot of very savvy decisions that I don't know if just the regular watcher would be like, ah, oh, clever, clever how they did that. So, yeah, yeah it props to them for, for that, but yeah, I think that it does, it's painful the amount of, um, uh, maneuvering that they had to do, and it really shows in some parts, especially in, in the writing on occasion. Yeah, that first episode was completely baffling for a lay person to be thrown into, and that's literally what it felt like. I, I often think that first episodes are always, in some way, you are being thrown into a river. Sometimes you're thrown in and you are guided down. Sometimes you, you know, you're very clearly in the middle of a boat and everyone else is rowing. Sometimes you've been given a flotation device and that's quite exciting. Sometimes you're white river rafting and, you know, like, so it feels very tumultuous. In this one, I was drowning and every time I put my head up above the water, I only got the briefest 
briefest glimpse of air before something else would come in. There were so many things to try to understand, so many different clashes of styles, like even tonally, it did not gel at all that, you know, it would be big slapstick humor and then the world is ending sort of, you know, or like emotional, like personal emotional crisis. And with no context, I had no idea if that was meant to be funny or if that, because also the humor was rarely that great in the first episode. So I'd be like, are they trying to be funny here? Like, why is this guy sticking his jaw out so aggressively and I'm expected to care for him, you know? Like, so yes, it was a baffling, baffling experience. My first five notes were expensively cheap, bad dialogue, OTT earnest, big short and ring light. <laughs> yeah, death has the biggest ring light ever. And we should talk a bit about the plot. Cause let's remember, perhaps you listener have not watched the show. Uh, so this episode begins, it's called a new Vimes experience because it's framed as a framing narrative of Vimes opening his eyes. And yes, he's a ring light right in his face. And then the ring turns out to be a halo of light in the darkness in which is standing death, the grim reaper who is a practical costume, like pretty much all of the weird characters in this show. Uh, you can't see skeleton. You just see these two glowing eyes out of the hood, which I actually kind of liked. Like it did look a little bit cheap, but it was also kind of cool. Then death speaks and death speaks with an American accent and has a very different personality to what we're used to. Um, the first things that are said in the show is death kind of telling some disembodied voices to shut up. I'm with someone. <laughs> and then Vime says, is this death? And he's like, well, obviously he <laughs> is kind of the gag, but he's having a near death experience and he's having a flashback. His whole life is passing before his eyes, but it's presented explicitly as exposition. And there's a, first of all, it goes, and we'll describe the scene in a minute, but it goes back 20 years earlier to Vimes's youth as a setup for what happens later. Vimes interrupts that 20 years ago at one point and says, do I have to watch this? Like, I was there. And I think a baffled viewer is probably going, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> it's interesting because I think sometimes that pace that they've forced upon themselves works really well for the show. Uh, and it works for the comedy too. But in this first episode, it's a struggle. Yeah, a lot of the time you don't want to actually stop and think about what's happening in too much detail because then you'd quickly sort of poke some holes in it. So it's actually better yes. to sort of keep going along. But um, yeah, uh, not so much the first episode. Oh, and I had just finished watching The Wire for the first time. So when Death Speaks, I was like, why is this voice so familiar? What's <laughs> going on? What's happening? And it's Bunk from The Wire, kind of playing Bunk as Death. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's got a great voice. Yes, he does, but... <laughs> and I think this is like, for someone who is very familiar with the books coming into this the first time, and I watched this when it was first released in Australia, and we got the first two episodes at once. Uh, it was released on Stan locally, and I watched them both, and then I watched it week to week. And the first episode was like, what? And then I watched the second one, and I was like, oh, okay, I think I see what you're doing here. Mm. Um, so it was a bit of a weird trip. But yeah, that was one of the first things, I think having death there is an interesting signpost to the viewer that this is not the disc world that you're used to. And in fact, I don't think they ever use the word disc world or disc at any mm. point. No. Yeah, you secondhand dimension? Like, what? what is that? They mention yeah. round worlds, which they is supposed to be Earth. Yeah. And they do, yeah. um, that's about it from what, from what I remember. 
Yeah, actually, the the text that appears on the screen, you just mentioned that, Liz, it says somewhere in a secondhand dimension, which is a paraphrase of a line from the books, which is somewhere in a secondhand set of dimensions in an astral plane that was never meant to fly. Like it's two puns in the book strung Mm. together. And here they've kind of shortened it. I think it kind of works if you're reading it, if you pay attention, if you kind of get what that means. You know, it's another dimension, but it's kind of a crap one. But I don't know that a casual viewer might pick that up and understand what that means in the split second they've got to read that caption. Yeah, I, like when I saw Death, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Death is a Terry Pratchett character. Like that's sort of the level I have. And I was like, what does that mean? And in the end, it means nothing. So it was a signifier <laughs> to um, – it was a, like a big signifier to the Terry Pratchett fans. But then like it's also – probably a disappointment to the Terry Pratchett fans, I can imagine, if it's not a faithful recreation. So it was a strangely ostracizing choice because I can't imagine who was like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Death. A, a confusing death narrator. <laughs> but he's kind of selfish and slightly a jerk. Um, mm. Yeah, it's weird. But look, let's get a bit more of the plot out. So the first flashback that we see is 20 years earlier, and it's a young Sam Vimes played by a different actor, who is on patrol outside the watch house. This is one of those things where when I first watched it, I was like, okay. Then when I watched it again, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, because they're patrolling and they're outside the front of the watch house, um, which has, you know, text on it, which looks fairly similar to the logo of the show. There's a lot of sort mm-hmm. of stuff from the production of the show that also turns up in the world of the show. It's a, it's one of those kind of things. But then Casa like, comes upon them. And seems surprised to see him. He's like, what are you doing here? Uh, and we, which makes no sense for him to ask because we immediately discover that this version of Sam Vimes is a member of Casa's street gang. They grew up on the streets, but now a lot of the members of the gang have been arrested now that they're sort of young adults and they're in the Watcher's jail cells, I guess, because they don't have a proper prison, as we'll explore in a later episode. And Vimes has been sent to join them to be their inside man. And he's supposed to kill the captain and free all of the other gang members who are prisoners. Um, so he's gone undercover. And Casa's there to find out why he hasn't done it, because he's been there for a month and he hasn't done it. And as he's arguing with him, the captain steps outside and tries to talk Casa down. And then there's a whole conversation. And also, and the other weird thing is that Casa almost immediately blows Vimes's cover. It's like you've sent him in undercover to kill this guy, and now you're just standing around while the captain comes out to talk to you, and you just go... Yeah, one of my gang works for you. That's him there. He's going to kill you. And you're like, why is this happening? It's a very weird thing as soon as you think about it. But I have to admit, when I first watched it, I actually didn't have as much of a problem with this first episode, I think, as the rest of you. I, I sort of just went along with it. And it was it was all right. But let's talk about these main characters. The first one of which we meet, of course, is Casa, who's having this argument. We'd like to apologize for being so bad at naming the actors in the show. Casa is played by Samuel Adewunmi, and you can find a full list of all the cast members in the episode notes. What do we think about this guy? He's set up as the villain. Nothing sort of. really there, to be honest. Like, we understand his motivations because we're told them, but we don't feel his motivations, and I don't really understand why he wants to do anything. And as a villain, he seems more sulky than maniacal or anything. It does feel like a personal vendetta, which in the end it is all about like a personal relationship and a vendetta, but in the sense of most friend falling outs are actually very 
silly little petty things that get blown up and it feels like that he doesn't really give much there's not a lot behind the kind of surface and he's supposed to have been like leading this gang almost like a father leadership figure and then he's felt like he's wronged by it because like just to jump forward a bit his whole thing is that he doesn't want to be erased or lost to time and all of that but i just didn't believe or feel it at any point because like a, he doesn't feel like leadership material. Like, I feel like I'm doing a job interview for him and I just don't see him leading a gang of any kind because he doesn't inspire confidence that he knows what he's doing at any point in the series. Like, you don't even get, for me, I didn't get any glimpses of this leader, Carcer, who has now, like, gone bitter. I just got this sulky guy who's hovering around kind of, like, trying to play with his dragons. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, so the difficulty with that character, I think, is that he's two-dimensional. We don't see him want... We just see him gripe and feel. And so if we saw him in a family unit with the, the thing and then Vimes betrays him and betrays all of them, if we saw, again, if you broadened that first episode out into three and set up this dynamic for, um, you know, it, the life that he had, the life that he lost, the world that he lost, then we would feel the three dimensions of the character. There's a lot of telling, not showing with Casa of like, well, I didn't have the choice, you know, and that's said multiple times just to remind you, uh, but it's never shown. And so we don't have the emotion to it. We just have to, are expected to pick up the slack between, we're just supposed to fill in the gaps, really. And that's not really how powerful narrative works. Uh, it's, it doesn't hook you. It's not emotive at all. And that's kind of sad. I think that him and Once could have been really interesting characters, especially with the fallout that happens. Yeah, but it's just, I don't think that there was enough time and money put into development, which is always the case with shows that don't sort of hold their weight. Usually it's just they haven't been, the writers haven't been given enough time and resources to flesh out and really do what they need to. Yeah, and look, the story of the development of this show is a whole other podcast. In fact, there's a couple of articles that sort of go into depth on that that we'll link to in our episode notes. And I think it's weird because it had too much development time and that I think that's kind of how it ended up. Because originally, um, when Pratchett was still alive, I think back in like 2011 or 2012 was when the development process started. And wow. originally, it was going to be a fairly straight adaptation of the world of the watch from the books, but turning that into a procedural fantasy drama, but with versions of the characters that were a lot more recognizable. And then it went through a whole bunch of other stuff and ended up as this, which is obviously right. something very different. And I think this period of the development was probably relatively short. Yeah. In fact, the original plan was a show set after all of the watchbooks, allowing it to start with a well-developed world and discord versions of a lot of the trappings of a modern procedural drama. Things only really changed after Pratchett died in 2015, in part because, according to Pratchett's agent, Colin Smythe, the contract only specified that Terry Pratchett had final say on scripts, without provision for Pratchett's representatives at Narrativia to sub in. It was shortly after that BBC Studios brought in Simon Allen, though things still seemed to be going fairly well until around 2019, when Allen seems to have gone a few steps too far for Rihanna Pratchett and Rob Wilkins at Narrativia. You can read more on this story in Mark Burrow's piece for heyyouguys.com, which we've linked in the episode notes. That's so funny that you say that because one of my immediate thoughts was that in some points it had the kind of beats and untechnical term vibe of like a um, 2010s sci-fi show, like S-Y-F-Y, um, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of like good-natured cheapness uh, mm-hmm. about it. 
It really reminded me of Killjoys, actually, the visual mm. look of the show. Absolutely. Like Sucker Punch in some ways as well. Yes. Yeah. More than one of the writers wrote on Torchwood. Um, yeah. And so, you know, they've all got their elbows into that sort of genre a fair amount. It makes sense that you say that, Ben, uh, because it's really clear that there was a vision for it that got chopped and changed, which also does happen. Um, yeah. And that's unfortunate. Although I should say, I don't envy anyone trying to adapt a Terry Pratchett novel because no. they're not narrative heavy. Um, this is why Good Omens was so bad. <laughs> it's because there's no, it's all description. There's no, nothing really happening. It's all just jokes in amongst a very thin plot. This is such a big thing because I've been thinking really heavily about fantasy book adaptations because we're in like a golden era of them right now. We're having more fantasy adapted and like more money to do it rather than kind of done in a very sort of cheap sort of superfluous way like in the past. So like things like The Wheel of Time, the upcoming um, Lord of the Rings one, all kind of going off the back of a very successful Game of Thrones adaptation. And it makes me think of the um, the narrative science behind it. And I think that one of the reasons that I struggled so much with, especially the first episode of this, is that when they were adapting it, they had a lot of trouble trying to create the necessary sense of reality foundation that the viewer needed in order for the stakes to make Mm. sense. Because in this first episode, it was so otherworldly in like in in what we're being told to understand, you know, this kind of city that doesn't exist anywhere except in this story that has almost no rules similar to our own that is also being treated comedically in the story and by everyone involved, I was like, how can I find anything dramatic or real or, like, upsetting when I don't understand the rules of this world? Because, like, oh, oh, this guy died. But this episode opened up with the main character talking to death already. Clearly, death has no real stakes here, you know? How can I possibly find any sense of drama because at any point I might find out that, oh, you know, like if you die, that's actually great in this world, you know? Um, and I think that that's a problem with adaptation and a problem in particular with this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll get on with the plot a little bit, but I, I think this is going to come out through this whole first episode because there's so much in it, as you were saying, because the, the flashback Vimes and Casa and uh, John Keel, the captain of the watch have this confrontation Vimes basically has has betrayed his gang and decided that maybe he can make a difference and do something good by staying in the watch, uh, which is a whole thing that we'll probably talk about, I think, as we go through this. Like, just communicate. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Casa goes to shoot Vimes because he's angry with him and Keel, the captain, throws himself in front of the crossbow bolt and dies. Keel's over. And gives him the badge. Uh, After giving a speech, I mean, again, this is a thing where nothing ever quite lines up because Keel gives this speech how in 20 years he'll be captain and then he immediately dies and makes him captain right then and there on the spot <laughs> after he's been in the watch for a month. It makes no sense. Which would have been such a great joke. That's like such a great moment for a joke and they just missed it. Anyway, they sorry. They did yes, not. Continue. Yeah, the comedy, like I, I've been teaching comedy writing for the last year and this was really interesting to watch again having been doing that. Some of the jokes in this are actually really clever 
And some of the pacing of the comedy is like, it's like you don't see that kind of pacing. And it's partly out of your saying, like they just have to cram things in so they don't labour some of the jokes that you would normally see laboured in a sitcom. But other times they do. They take like two or three steps too many. And then other times you're like, there's a gag there. Why didn't you do the gag? Anyway, so that happens. Vimes chases Carter to the top of Unseen University. We don't know what that is yet, but there's a big magical (laughs) storm with pink lightning. So we know that it's weird. And actually, my main note for this first episode and the rest of the series is it seems to me like the main note, I'm sure it was more complicated. In fact, I watched some of the behind the scenes stuff, although it was basically a standard kind of electronic press kit interviews. It wasn't anything kind of in depth, but they had more of an idea about what the world was. But it just sort of felt to me like they were just saying all the time, it's weird. Did you know this place is weird? It's weird. It's not like what you're used to, like in as many different ways as possible. But anyway, they run to the top of the university they have a bit of a scuffle. Casa falls over the edge and hangs on and shouts out, arrest me. But Vimes just stands there and he falls off down and vanishes into the clouds, seemingly struck by lightning. Um, and that's supposedly the last Vimes ever saw of him. Problem being, of course, we see him again in the show, maybe 10 minutes later. So there's no time for this to settle in in, in Gravitas. Then they go to the present of the show. And this is where I, one of the things I liked about the show a lot is the way they use captions. Most of the time. Sometimes I think they massively screwed it up, but a lot of the time it's good. And one of the times it's great, they go to the 20 years in the future and there's a caption that says, 20 years, 9,321 bottles of booze, 68,237 brain cells later. And the brain cells thing is just ticking over slightly, going Hmm. higher. As you see modern Vimes arguing with a small white dog who he's trying to arrest, who pisses on him and then he's about to piss on him back. I Now, a lot of people do not like this version of Vimes, and uh, but I want us to talk about this character because I kind of love him. I love him. And I also think he's actually not a million miles away from the version of the character that you see in the first book. Now, there's like eight or nine books, and so most of the time he's not that version of the character. That version really only exists in that first book. He changes quite a lot. But uh, particularly at the start of Guards, Guards, this is who Vimes is. He's a washed up drunk in a watch that no one gives two shits about. And I kind of got into the cartoony vibe of the show and the over the top performance. Like, I know a lot of people were like, he's chewing the scenery. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm loving the shit out of it. It's hilarious. But what did everyone else think about Vimes and Richard Dormer's performance as the character? I like honestly I I had less problem with his performance but I felt like the show wasn't keeping up with him you know so yeah. so I so I was like he was so present and so energetic in that role that I was like well this is he's setting the tone but then no one else was actually reaching that tone and not even just in a kind of white face red nose uh you know clown versus juxtaposed serious sort of thing just in the sense of like other people were also making gags but they were on a different level so it felt like there was for no good reason that everyone should be looking at him and being like, what's this guy's deal? Um, and no one really was, you know? Mm. So that was the only issue that I had. Um, but, I, you know, he was he was doing the most and I respect him for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought he was perfect. I thought that they, the casting director must have been so happy to have found him because he just, in that role... He's just perfect. The way that he can pull out a cork from a bottle and spit it out and drink. And that's funny. 
You know, there's, I, I just, I absolutely agree with you, Patrick, that he's head and shoulders above everyone else with regards to just casual comedy. Everyone else, every, all of the other cast people are actors and he was a comedian, you know, and so he was leaning into the comedy and doing his thing and doing it very well and it just didn't make sense because nobody else could match that. And I think that makes sense in some characters. Uh, like Lord Vitnari as a foil against that energy was great. Mm. And Angua as a foil against that energy is great. I wish Carrot was had had things. I wish Carrot was clumsy, you know, knocking things over would have been great. And then Angua just catching them and Vimes responding to that. You know, there, there's so much. There, there, there was just like tweaks that you could have made or casting decisions that you could have made that lent into the comedy more. Um, but I, I don't think the problem is Vimes. I think you're right, Patrick. That the comedy was everything else around that. <laughs> No, I agree. I think that's a really good way to put it, like both of you, because I think what I really struggled with was the big mishmash of everything in episode one. So it was just so chaotic that you don't know which thread to invest in, mm. that, that you know what's going to be the tone throughout, because there isn't. Like, it's so inconsistent that I, I was like, you don't know what's the bit that's not fitting at first. And so I ended up just hating it for the, for the first episode initially. So it was hard for me to unpick whether Vimes was good or not, mm. because everything was happening at once. Pretty There's much. a lot to evaluate, you know, whether you're a new person coming in or whether you're a fan trying to figure out what is this. And I feel like, you know, as much as a casual viewer has difficulty, I think particularly in this first episode, a fan is also just going, okay, yes, Vimes, I see, I see what you're doing there. And Carrot, I think, um, who is the, the next sort of main character that we meet, although in his first scene, he just sort of runs through chasing a criminal. Um, which is nice. I like the, I actually kind of like that introduction to his character that we see him doing the job and then they catch up later. It's, and that's quite similar to, you know, how it happens in the books for Carrot. You know, he rests the head of the thieves guild. Like that's all stuff from the books. But every time something like that happened, I'm like, okay, who is that? Is that who I think it is? Because they don't look who, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Great. And it's such a mishmash because they've taken a roster. And I actually think they picked a great combination of characters for having such a small core cast of the watch itself, making it very small. You know, a few people have, have said that, and I think rightly so, that there are some aspects of the books that would be quite difficult to put on screen as written, not just from a technical point of view, but also from a, that's not really how we tell stories and the kind of characters that we make anymore. And I think, you know, the, the show rightly has had a few props for trying to address that. And by picking the character mix that they did, you know, that gave them more diversity in terms of gender, but also just in terms of character, it's not all a bunch of washed up older men, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's nice, but it is, it is a bit weird looking at it and going, is that who I think it is? Well, I wasn't able to quite get on board and sort of enjoy, for lack of a better word, the show until a few episodes in when I was able to distance myself from thinking of the book characters and just thinking of them as the characters in the series mm. as a separate different version of them and I think everything kind of settled into place for me in terms of finally liking this portrayal of Vimes which applied retroactively strangely enough in that shot where he's going off into the desert um, mm. and the Miami Vice music is playing and he's going I'm like you know what I can I can get on board with this because I think that just sort of distilled everything into this character in this context I needed some time to see where they were going with this and see what was going to shake out over the next few episodes because some things had to go for me to enjoy it. Yeah, I think that is the right approach to it. And I think that that may be why it was so loathed is because a lot of fans can't do that. 
and that's fair, but it's um, you, you're only ever going to hate an adaptation if you can't set aside your preconceived notions about it and try and engage with it as a work in and of itself. Yeah. Mm. That's not to say this show is flawlessly executed on its own merits, no. but I really, I haven't said this yet, but I, I do want to say that I actually really like this. I accept it has a lot of flaws, but I mm. kind of was up for the ride that it was offering as much as it felt a bit like, so I'm a big board game nerd, and I often talk about this board game, Wingspan, which is a beautiful game. If you've not played it, it's wonderful. You're basically trying to collect birds to get bird points. It's not worth talking about the mechanics, but it's beautiful. There's all these watercolor pictures of birds on the cards. There's these little tokens that look like little wooden eggs. It's it's beautiful. It's a wonderful experience to play. But if you stop and start thinking about the narrative expression of the things you're doing in the game, it all makes no sense. Like, in order to get a new bird, you have to spend eggs from any combination of other birds. And But the new bird you get will be a different species to all the other birds because every card is a different species of bird. You know, how does that work? And why am I moving this bird into the wetlands? And why am I... It doesn't make sense. And I think in the same way... Watching the watch, I was like, oh, I'm having a great time. Some of it is funny. Some of it's kind of dumb. Uh, some of it is cool. Uh, some of it, it doesn't entirely make sense in the moment, but I'm willing to go with it. And as soon as you start thinking about it in any depth, a lot of things start to fall apart. <laughs> it started with the world. Cause like we see this world of Ank Morpork in this first episode and it's got a very kind of blade runnery kind mm, of vibe. Truly. Like it's all sort of weird neon and wires and rain and big buildings, but also very bright colours. Like the Mended Drum, which is the classic old-school fantasy tavern, turned up to 11 in the books. In this one is this weird bar where it's underground, like it's, you know, basement level, and all the walls are just, like, spattered with UV paint. And so it's all these glowing colours. That's what you hope it is. Yeah, who knows? It could be could be blood from a thousand bar fights with weird creatures. That might have been the thought behind it. I don't know. And also, like, the levels of technology is really difficult to gauge because they don't have guns. They're all wearing crossbows. And they're sta- they use them incorrectly, but I, that's okay. Well, do they? I like... Well, there's I, that bit where he, like, fires off the bit of the wall, and that's not how it works. What? What do you mean? <laughs> it's like when he's like, the carrot's trying something out and he's like doing something and he accidentally fires it. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that goes wrong. Like it's not, I can't remember what it's specific. I'll watch oh, it okay. again. I, I, but, yeah. I don't remember that bit, but it, but I like that they came up with like a cool, like folding crossbow design that could go in a holster. Like it looked like fantasy cops. Like that was cool. But then they walk past, and this was a detail I only noticed watching the making of, but they walk past a metal booth in the street that says radio ank on it, but they don't have any radios or telephones. They have the Klax, which is named after the Klax in the books, but it's not the Klax. It's a ticker tape machine. It's this weird mishmash that means, like you were saying, Patrick, you never feel like you're comfortable and understand the world enough to get the next assumption that it makes. But so, yeah. much, so much of that is this is a visual medium. You can't have Klax in a visual medium. It needs to translate to something visual. And so, like, so much of what you're describing is them just trying to figure out how to include these details visually. The, the clacks are visual. I mean, you could have the clacks. I mean, it would be slow. I think that's the big problem mm. with the clacks. But then you could speed them up like that happens in the later books. Like, I think I understand why it's a, it's a tick tape machine. But then I'm like, call it something else. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't have to be the thing from the book. Sure. And I think at this stage, watching it in episode one, I was getting a bit of, that is a name from the book. Yes, but it's not the concept from the book. It's mm. kind of analogous to the concept from the book. 
why didn't you just call it something else okay. so that there's no confusion? They did that with people too, though. With Yeah, with the people as well, but yeah. I assume that um, the original books weren't done in a kind of like cyberpunk slash steampunk sort of thing, which I cannot stand steampunk, by the way. And, and, every, <laughs> and every time it like it inched into that world, I was like... But it never did. Um, you know, there was, there was no steam that I could see. It was more like imp punk or something. Um, uh, which I was like, okay, this is sort of getting me by. But I was interested in the choice behind that. I'm assuming that they transferred from like generic medieval fantasy sort of worldish thing. Yeah. It's sort of a generic the past. Like yeah. it's not your standard magical medieval Europe of like Dungeons and Dragons kind of stuff. It's a bit more modern than that. There's a bit of Victorian London, but without the Industrial Revolution until during the books, some of that stuff comes in. So it's not quite your standard fantasy world, but it would look more like your standard fantasy Mm. world visually. Yeah, I didn't mind. I got to say, I didn't mind that element of it, except for everyone just had like a weird amount of dirt put on their Mm. face um, as makeup. Like, um, and I'm like, okay, that's. Like, I get it, it's grimy, but, like, I, I guess as a Virgo, I, you know, I was just like, wash your face. <laughs> <laughs> that was a deliberate decision, uh, watching one of the behind-the-scenes things. They were like, yeah, and a lot of the people have dirt on them. <laughs> it was like, okay, it's, it's, it's th- that was what they wanted was grime. They wanted it to be grimy. Um, yeah, yeah, but it was not grimy, it was dirty. Mm. Mm. It was different. What, actually, we one thing we haven't addressed... Vimes is wearing, like, and this is quite a popular choice, a lot of eyeliner. So much eyeliner. But it's never really, like, you never see him put it on. Mm. Uh, it's not a makeup choice that the character is making. His eyes just look like that, apparently. Um, and same with Angua. Like, I can't imagine her putting that on every morning when she wakes up. But that's what her eyes look like. And there's a lot of characters. That's the watch uniform. Whereas Cheery, like, obviously, they're putting that on whenever they want, like, and changing it all the time. Mm. That makes sense. But, uh, and I like it as a look, but also, again, it's one of those things I think about it for more than a few seconds and I'm like, he's not putting that on every day. Why does he have that on his face? Well, it's like in New Girl how her glasses don't have lenses in it and that is not, like, something that's a character choice. It's, like, to keep glare off the camera, presumably, but, like, now I can't see anything else whenever I'm watching an episode of it. I'm like, (laughs) why is she wearing those for no reason? it's the same with their eyeliner. It's just, it doesn't make sense in the character. It's for the aesthetic. So, like, you arrive in Ankhmore Fork, they give you, like, a year's supply of eyeliner. <laughs> or, like, while you're sleeping, someone, like, comes out from veterinary's department and puts it on you. And so you <laughs> just think it's part of your face. Like, you do it. Or it's tattooed <laughs> on. It's permanent. Yeah, well, you have to suit the general, like, aura of the city. Like, so it's not aesthetic if you don't have eyeliner. <laughs> but it's, like, it's another level of artifice that, um, that honestly does more to separate us from levels of reality, you know, kind of what we were talking about before. And like, and this is a pretty minor one. And I don't want to be too serious about, you know, like, like grimy makeup, but it is another one of those things which made me say, well, if this doesn't follow any laws of reality, what else doesn't, you know, like, um, and the show does try to get you to believe in certain things as being real and serious. If it was all comedy, the characters themselves can take the world seriously, but if the world treats itself as a joke, then that's an entirely different thing. But there are too many people giving the wink to the uh, the watcher. Um, and yeah. 
And that makes it very difficult to hold on to anything in terms of stakes. But I'll, I will stop. I'm so I'm obsessed with stakes in narrative um, yeah. because um, watching as much television as, as I have to, I'm constantly like, well, why do I care? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think in the watch, like as you were saying earlier, Fury, it just tells us that we should care. One of the big themes about the whole season is that the watch and, and Sam Vimes in particular leading them are incredibly important to making the people believe and do good mm. and change things. We never see a single instance of that happening. Yeah. Not once in the eight episodes. The only nod to it actually happening is someone graffitis a fist on the watch house that's meant to mean resist. And I mean, there's a whole, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about the whole idea of the cops being the resistance, but that's it. Like we never, people talk about it, not just people, like supernatural entities assure us that this is the future. Casa has been to the future and seen it. We never see what he saw in the future. He tells us, and I think two scenes across maybe four lines of dialogue in the whole eight episodes, he tells us he's seen the future, but never really, we don't see it. It's really weird. It's really weird. And also that these entities, they don't, you know, you're going wrong when your character has multiple motivations. So they start off with the watch is the problem, and then they shift to Sybil and Vimes are the problem. They need to, like, split. And it's like, wait, you give it, what? What What do you want? What is yeah. the outcome? What, what, do you, what, is, what are your motivations? What is the bound? Like, wh- why? What? He always want a big dragon, and he want everyone to like him. Yeah, and then the drag, the dr- so, okay, so yeah, so the the <laughs> dragon is supposed to destroy the city somehow, and that's supposed to solve a problem that we don't know exists and is never told exists. And then, uh, then it shifts to um, what I said. Oh yeah, the watch is the problem actually, and them teaching people to believe is the problem. We need to stop that. And then, no, actually, Sybil and. Vimes in every timeline fall in love and stay in love together and that's the problem and like what, what that's not that's not good television my friend that is not that's three things three yeah. things and that and a lot of the show is like that yeah. I think uh there there's I mean I I felt I I'm one of those people I got to the end and I'm like okay so what was it about and I kind of assembled a story that made sense in my head but I was doing that and I I don't want to use a board game example for everything, but I recently played this very complicated board game called Oath. And people are rave about how it's this great storytelling experience because you play the game and this emergent story happens. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. Mm. Things happen in the game that don't really have any logical explanation in a story. And you make up a story to make sense of the things that happened in the game. And I felt there was an aspect of the watch. And I want to say again, I actually quite like the show, but but I do have criticisms. And this is one is that a lot of it, makes sense if the viewer does some work to make sense of it yeah and that's not always a bad thing but there's a lot of it in the watch and yeah this multiple motivations thing look i do want to get more into that but i think we do need to introduce the characters and the plot a bit more for people who haven't watched it through the rest of this episode we meet carrot carrot arrives he's been assigned to the watch he's come from the mountains where he lives with a family of dwarves he is not a dwarf he's like over he's like six feet tall strapping so is cheery but they just like breeze past that with one line oh you know it's different i kind of of like that but yes that was funny i mean it was weird like i'd rather it they were Mm -hmm. the same height yeah and it breezed past with a comment than trying to make cheery short or something but it just the logic the logic people are talking at the moment about how bad an idea it is that disney is considering making a live action remake of snow white and the seven dwarves and you're like yeah i mean i think 
putting Pratchett dwarves on screen is quite a different thing. Yeah, yeah. Particularly if one of them's cheery, but still, it's yeah. still not ideal. But yeah, and I think there is a conflict there because the whole point of uh, Carrot's character is it's hilarious that he thinks like a dwarf because he's a six foot tall human. Yes. And Cheery has a whole different story going on. You know, her height is not part of the problem. But yeah, we'll come back to Cheery. But so, mm. so we meet Carrot, spin aside from the mountains. Uh, was thrown down a mine shaft as a baby and landed on his adoptive dwarf parents and now has come to the city, he thinks, because, you know, it's going to be good for him and he's going to- He um, got summoned. He's got summoned, you know, he's he's, he's going to make a difference. And so when he turns up, he's he knows all the rules. He's just like the carrot in the books. He's read the, the law book and he's trying to arrest people and then discovers to his dismay that crime has been- um, has been legalized. There are now guilds for thieves and assassins. I mean, they keep talking about how many guilds they are. We only ever actually hear about four. Mm. There's the guild of uh, assassins and the guild of thieves who are the main ones. Um, there's also the guild of musicians who perform an important but more minor role in the plot. Um, and then <laughs> and there's the guild of alchemists as well. Uh, thank you. Um, but yeah, anyway, so he's dismayed by this and doesn't feel like he's, he should be there. He doesn't feel like he fits in. And then he finds the letter from his father and realizes that he was kicked out of the mine because the other dwarfs are afraid of him because he's so big and he's been sent away to the city to be with people his own size. And this kind of destroys him. And you're like, for someone who was abandoned by his parents at birth, like in a not subtle way, like thrown down a mine shaft to be abandoned again. Like I, I thought that was quite affecting. It's quite different to the, what happens with Carrot in the books emotionally, but. Yeah. I felt nothing for Carrot in the series. I was just kind of like, whatever. I just you have a cry baby boy, like, which made me feel like a psychopath, but I just, I did not click with the character at all. I just did not feel anything. Every, every moment with that character was a wasted opportunity. You know, like we, we got none of that an emotional connection with, you know, any of that. He was meant to be the fish out of water character, which would help us understand the world around him because he is the new character. He should be the one who was like, I don't understand any of this. But instead, he fulfilled that role in the worst way possible in which people would do exposition at him and mm. be like, don't you know that the guilds exist and blah, 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 blah. And he yeah. would be like, ah, yes. But there was no, there was no sense of like dislocation or, you know, like, or emotional abhorrence about anything sort of happening. It was a little bit, you know, when like his whole thing about like, well, that's crime, you know, like um, that, that was at least good because that was the stand-in for all of us being like, but assassination's a crime. But then it was one note, you know, like we never, like he never, he never sort of developed. It was such a, sh- it was such a shame because I think mm. that there was the most potential with, uh, mm. with that character. Yeah. One of the things I really loved about Carrot's introduction to the watch and to Ankh-Morpork is the way that there's a brawl with a bunch of dwarves and he walks in and he puts them all in their place and they all, and then they all start singing or something and start crying and thinking of their mothers. And I think that the way you could have eased that character a little bit is to position him so strongly within the dwarf community, um, that he has a place and he has a motivation and he has more dimension. And I think as well, that's such an important part for seeing why Angua might fall for him. Because he's such a nothing character, it's really unclear (laughs) why she's attracted to him at all. Uh, She's so cool and interesting and like uh, emo. And he's just just there. He's just this Andy Dwyer type. Not even that, you know? Oh, God, that is who he is, isn't it? I mean, I I like like the, the actor. 
Uh, I agree that he's not given much to do. I think, I think he's been directed that way. I don't think this is his um, lack of skill or anything, but it's, yeah. And, and he's, you're right. He's lacking that dimension. Like the whole dwarf thing becomes just a joke that comes up maybe four times in the whole season. Yep. Um, and there's like a reference to him being too literal when a vampire tries to mesmerize him. That was quite funny, but also it's not really established in the rest of the show. So it didn't really make sense in the moment. Mm. Mm. He didn't need to be there. And you're right also that I think they left out most of the dwarf stuff on purpose. I think because they wanted to let that be Cheery's thing, but then Cheery's thing's not really about like there's no dwarf culture there at all. It's no. just about conformity and non-conformity. Like that's yeah. it. There's no deeper dimension to it. Do you know do you know that I missed cheery dwarf stuff? I like in this conversation now I'm like, "Oh, this makes sense. That's well, that's that's why there was the song about gold." Like I was <laughs> I I did like well, I did I don't not get you, it. Cuz in yeah. the episode that's about that, they keep referring to them as miners and not dwarves. Which yeah, right is yeah. weird, right? I'm like, Kira just has that one line about being a dwarf, like, and it's they, almost you blink and you miss it. Yeah, they come in all sizes. I think they only kept the dwarf thing for Cheery because, first of all, it's such an important part of the book characters yeah. concept. But um, which is a different take on the on similar themes. Like, it's coming at it from a quite a different angle. I think this is a much less subtle sort of thing, and it's also not drawing on like the books for Cheery's journey in the books rely on the standard Tolkien-esque idea of dwarves, mm. like all having beards and nobody yes. really knowing, you know, are there are there men and women in dwarf? We don't know. They're just dwarves. Um, and that's sort of played with really well and interestingly in Cheery's storylines through the books, mm. whereas this is coming from a, a more modern perspective on uh, gender roles and on transitioning and all that kind of stuff. But it's still, it's not super deep. Um, and I guess we, we sort of transitioned in talking about Cheery, so we should talk about Cheery next because she, uh, and, and look, we acknowledge that several of the characters use multiple pronouns, but she starts out as a she, uh, later on becomes they, but she is introduced as the Watcher's forensic person in a scene where she revives Vimes, who has dropped down, you know, dead drunk with Clatchy and coffee, which is one of many little nods to the books that kind of works, even mm. though I think you would probably, it's quite fast, so maybe you wouldn't necessarily follow it. That was just one of those things of like, I don't know what that is, but I'm assuming it's like, you know, intense coffee. Like, I, you know, I like, I don't mind things like that. You can mm. get context clues for them, I think. Yeah. I thought it was good that it comes back later. Like that was something that mm. wasn't just there and then left for no reason, even though it's like a fun nod to the books. The fact that it came in a couple of episodes later as an actually relevant and quite important thing. I thought it was, it showed that they had actually talked between episodes. They weren't just like, here's all the stuff. Mm. So That yeah. was rare, though. Like, one of the other mm. things I noticed about this is there's a lot of times they bring something in and then you just never hear about it again. Mm. Oh, yeah. uh, including characters, like, <laughs> like who seem important for an episode and then you're like, you know, like there was a dead alchemist and then we never talk about that dead alchemist ever again. And, you know, and, and you're like, well, what, what point was that? Oh, forget about that, Patrick. There's a, there's a sword now. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did like the sword though. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, the sword was fun. Although, I mean, it was one of many times where they just cast Matt Berry. And then once Matt Berry said yes, I think they just rewrote all of his dialogue. So it was standard Matt Berry nonsense. And it was funny, but I'm also like, I mean, I've seen this before. Mm. <laughs> like in everything else Matt Berry's ever done. 
Maybe we'll come back to Chiri when we get to her episode. So, but we meet Chiri, the dwarf who's like normal human sized, um, and who Carrot is initially confused about her gender, but only in one line. I, I kind of like that they put that in, but mm. then he's just, okay, right. I got it. It felt to me like the way that the ideal getting someone's pronoun wrong conversation mm-hmm. goes, where yeah. someone just goes, no, it's she. And yeah. the other person goes, oh, right. She, sorry. And then you just carry on with your lives. So I quite like that. Uh, so she's there. Don't forget, very important character that's important throughout Detritus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't forget Detritus. So Detritus is meant to be Sam's best friend in the watch. We never find out what their backstory is beyond one scene of him in the rain looking up at Detritus saying, why did you save me? And it's clearly implied that he was trying to kill himself by throwing himself off a bridge. Mm-hmm. And Detritus, whose job was to prop up the bridge in a kind of ham-fisted troll bridge kind of joke, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it saves him from drowning and then Vimes inducts him in the watch. We never see that story, so we don't really know how it works out, but we're meant to think of them as being best mates. We don't see you them Don't together. invest in that for too long. Yeah. No, because I think we see them together in like two or three scenes before, spoiler alert, Detritus dies at the start of Saving episode Vimes. Two. Saving yeah, Vimes. Once again. So it's, I mean, it's a great costume. I, I can't yeah, dug it. That's the thing. I, I think that this was CG, a CGI decision. If they mm. had kept him alive, then he would have had to have been in a lot of scenes and they would have cost a lot of money, which makes me sad because if they had just hired me to write, but also I would have given them this great tip about how to make an excellent golem costume that I will have stolen from New Zealand LARP. They, <laughs> I can send you a clip of it because I think there's one, a video of it still rocking around. And it's very easy to make a very convincing, interesting golem costume, uh, given some amateur LARPers did a very good one in New Zealand in the 2000s, early 2000s. If you've seen the adaptation of Going Postal, they did a practical golem costume for Mr. Pump, and he looks great. Uh, mm. And I actually I actually don't mind the look of Detritus in this. I think it's really weird that he's wearing shorts. Mm. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. like that. It just feels weird. Mm. And also... Maybe he's Australian. Well, we... <laughs> there's a few Australians in this, or it's people who sound Australian anyway. Makes sense. It was shot in South Africa. But yeah, it, they never really explain what a troll is. Mm. He's just a big rocky dude. And the behind the scenes thing, they were talking about, yeah, we put moss on him to sort of show that there was something living in the rock. And I'm like... The, mm. You missed that, that entirely. Yeah. And he's I moving like the- and talking. Yeah. You don't need that. I think that it comes, like, it brings together things that both Fury and Patrick said that there wasn't enough time to build up any, like, sort of sense of their relationship, which meant that there was no stakes. And so when they suddenly yeah. kill him off, I'm like, what? Yeah. I was, I got whiplash and all of the sadness I felt, I think, came from knowing the scenes we weren't going to get from that character having read the books. Yes. But if I was watching it purely as a television show, I'd be like, why did they introduce this character at all? Yeah. Because you don't get any blowback on Vimes because you don't care about their relationship at that point and you're not connected enough with Detritus as a character to care about his death. Like, yes, it comes back later at the end so that he can have, like, in the alternate reality, that whole sort of thing. But still, we didn't have the sense of their relationship, so it didn't have the emotional resonance that it might otherwise have had. He may as well have not been there, in my opinion. And, I mean, you know, there's no establishment of, like I say, what a troll is. Mm. So there's also... Like when he runs in to save Vimes, so he, he does a, you know, this happens like four or five times during the show. Somebody jumps mm. in front of a crossbow bolt. It feels like it's a very well established trope outside of this show. So it's okay. It's like in Danger Five when they have, keep having the shot of Hitler jumping through the, the same shot, jumping through the <laughs> glass window every episode. Oh, uh, but you know, he takes, he does a Boromir, you know, like he takes mm. like four or five arrows 
He takes a lot more arrows than Boromir, actually. He's uh, a rock. He should have survived that. Yeah, they shoot him in the neck. I'm like, his neck's made of stone. How is this what possible? <laughs> like, as a hit a major artery in his stone body? Like, what's it going does. on? Yeah, he just dies. A gold vein. Uh, and turns into a small rock. <laughs> well, I thought like, he chipped a piece off him. Well, yeah, you see a bit of rock fall off him when he's dying, and I think yeah. that's meant to be the rock that they have later on. But it's very... Again, you have to join the dots yourself. That's extremely ghoulish. Like, if my friend dies and their finger falls off, like, I'm not going to be, like, walking around with that finger being like, ah, yes, you know, my good friend Liz helps me be not scared of the dark. Oh, uh, you're a you Oh, no. Especially because I am afraid of the dark, so I guess that would just make you doubly afraid. Oh, no. yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. I hadn't thought about it like that. But also, it's one of the, again, it's one of the things they set up. Up and it doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, maybe mm. that was one they were saving for a potential second season. Well, they just know. met. Like, they didn't have a relationship, like Carrot and Detritus. Yeah, well, yeah, Carrot and Detritus, that's not going to go anywhere. But uh, so <laughs> that's that's them. Um, and then uh, Angua. We need to talk about Angua as a character before we try and complete the plot of the first episode. But she's just, she's the, I mean, she's she's the cool one, yeah. but also the angry one. And also, so she's not that angry most of the time. She's just sort of pissed off rather than mm. angry. Angrier. <laughs> um, but also, you know, she's the resident badass, I guess, would be the way to describe it in modern terms. And she's pretty cool. I actually really like this version of Angua. Very different backstory mm. to the books and a bit more angsty about who she is. But I like, I like that's what I want from a werewolf story trope. Mm. Like, that's kind of why you write them. It's like uh, the old vampire and werewolf role-playing games where the tagline was like, it's a role-playing game of personal horror. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> I have to turn into a wolf and eat people. Mm. This is the one character that had no qualms with any any of the changes, and I think mm. was perfectly fine. I enjoyed watching her on screen. I thought she was magnetic, and yeah, this character just worked for me. Yeah, I, I I don't know any of what her previous things was, but they there was some safety in the werewolf trope being played fairly faithfully here because. As an audience, we understand what that trope is, so they didn't. So they actually had a lot of storytelling done for them. Mm. And honestly, just keep it with that. You know, mm. like um, it's just like great. We get it. You know, you're a werewolf, and and that's that has issues. <laughs> yeah, and when they do her backstory, they can do it very economically. Like it's mm. like two or three very short scenes that are in that flashback when she's in the desert, and you see, and and really all they add to what we already know is, yeah, she comes from a whole family of werewolves. She didn't know she was a werewolf until she was sort of of age. And then they made her eat her best friend because she's mm. not allowed to be friends with humans. And her grandmother and her mother were in on it and didn't yeah. tell her. And you're like, yeah. okay, that's escalated the standard werewolf story like several levels. And mm-hmm. she runs off at the end of those flashbacks. And we're like, clearly that's when she went to the city and never went back. Like it all made sense. And it, her character felt complete and mm. in the series made sense. Oh, so it was young for her to go then go to the city. I wish they'd made her a teenager. I think it would have been mm. more interesting if she mm. was a teenager because I think especially if a f- two 15-year-old girls can have a really close relationship and to then have eaten your best friend, <laughs> the potential love interest, I think is way more compelling than mm. a seven-year-old. Maybe they were trying to up the stakes by making it more hor- horrific because it was such a young child being forced to eat such a young child. But again, I, mean, I don't think that's less, less horrific than no, 15-year-olds. Yeah. I think it lands less, yeah. Yeah. Because seven-year-old has less choice. Yeah, kids will be kids. <laughs> yeah, I've seen them kids, eat each other you know? emotionally, for sure. <laughs> it's a well-eat-human world, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Right, so I feel like we've met certainly all the members of the Watch or the main members of the Watch, and there's one more main character we will meet, but let's get through a bit more of the plot because Vimes gets in a bit of trouble because Carrot's been arresting the heads of guilds and has to go and see Vetinari, the patrician, played by Anna Chancellor, and another opportunity for them to do a few, you know, queer things with pronouns because it is Lord Havelock Vetinari played by a woman using both male and female pronouns, as we find out later. I thought she did a great job, but I also just didn't, like, I like the character, but I also was like, this is not the patrician from the books either. Like, different motivation, different drives. Also, yeah. she wasn't scary. No. no. She didn't seem to genuinely care about things either. We were meant to find her scary. Yeah. You're meant to find it, like, to, the Assassin's Guild is afraid of crossing her slash him. Right. Uh, you know, the Assassin's Guild wouldn't dare try and murder Vetinari, which is why he is in the position that he's in, and you just don't get that from this character and this actor. There wasn't a sinister, calculated, clever. Um, it was sort of just a, a brusque politician. Mm. Interesting, in an interview with the actor, she said she felt that Vetinari loves the city, but also she's obsessed by it. Mm. and mm. doesn't think that anyone else could do as good a job as she does. And I think that's true of the patrician in the books too, but he's he th- only thinks that because he's correct. He doesn't think mm. it out of ego. Mm. Whereas I get the impression this character just thinks that they're better than everyone else. Yes. Uh, and that's why they should be in charge. And they are obviously good at it or they wouldn't be able to hang on to the position, but then they're quite cowardly and kind of shitty at the end, mm. which was yeah, the bit the- where the wheels fell off a bit for the patrician for me. But otherwise, I, I quite enjoyed this portrayal of the character. Mm. I think it would have been a better choice if he sh- had been forced to be in the dungeon as opposed to chose to go into the dungeon. Mm. That would have been made the joke funnier and made the character more consistent. Yeah, rather than I'm going to go into my safe room now. Yeah. It's like, oh no, you're taking me to my dungeon, which yeah. I have secretly set up in advance to be quite yeah. luxurious. Yeah. yeah, I agree. That would have been way better. But Vines gets told off and gets given the one actual crime the watch is allowed to investigate, which at the moment is a missing library book, but the library is the Unseen University Magical Library. And we don't really follow that, uh, but when Vimes catches up with the others, as in we don't really follow that immediately, but then Vimes catches up with the others and meets uh, Angua, just as Carrot's gone into the Mended Drum, has a bit of a fight. There's some more, uh, even drug trade is legal because the Alchemist's Guild are a guild. And that's where he sees Casa. And this is, again, remember, about five, ten minutes after we've seen the flashback to 20 years earlier. So they've set up this flashback and now, oh, look, it's that guy you saw. And it's not shocking to us. And we just sort of have to run with, I mean, I think, you know, Richard Dorn does a pretty good job of being incredulous and amazed. Um, but he goes in looking for Casa and immediately loses him and then passes out drunk, uh, which is then when we get to the scene where Chiri revives him. Um, and this sets off the main two plot threads of the episode, um, really the first couple of episodes, one being Vimes investigating, trying to figure out, did I see Casa? Is he really alive? I mean, I, th- I feel like from the audience perspective, there's never any doubt. So it's not as mysterious as it could be. Like, we just know it's him. Uh, mm. And the other plot is sort of Carrot coming to terms with what the watch is and trying to persuade them to investigate a crime, any crime, please, just let's do some actual police work, which leads them eventually to the same place that Vimes ends up. But on Vimes's journey, he does some actual policing, although much like in a lot of sort of 90s and 1000s uh, UK dramas, his policing is basically checking CCTV 
And I don't know, I don't know about you, but like the way that they've included the sort of idea of the iconograph from the books, which is the equivalent of a camera, except there's an imp inside that paints a picture. They've turned it into like a security camera, which doesn't transmit anywhere, but it has a weird little, I mean, again, this is like, I couldn't grok the level of technology. Like there's imps painting the pictures, but they're painting them on basically a high tech tablet, which is, which has a style of a vision, which is just instagram filter like Mm. the one that turns it into a painting you know it's it's it was very weird but i kind of liked it visually but anyway that's what he does is he follows that trail and it felt to me like they were trying to tell us that yeah and it's a surveillance state like there's these cameras everywhere but i was like but who looks at them like the Mm. watch doesn't do any investigating and also (laughs) this is made by a uk company what's made for an American audience because BBC America, but it's made, you know, by people from the UK. And London is actually full of CCTV cameras and has been for about 30 years. So it's not unusual, but it felt unusual to me, but I couldn't quite figure out what they were trying to say with it. So it was a, it was a bit weird. But it was corruptible, which I kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> that joke was good later on. <laughs> yeah, that was very fun. But yeah. I didn't love the animation style, actually, because it tapped into that thing I think we were talking about earlier where it felt like, it would have been a revolutionary cool thing in like 2014, but now it's just so old hat that you're like, oh yeah, this again. It's like my phone can do this. Yeah. yeah. But he follows the trail that leads him to the dead alchemist you mentioned, Patrick. It's not meant to be, I think, a big revelation, but basically what's happening is that someone is killing alchemists and stealing their supply of slab, which is a drug, and amassing a huge quantity of it. And as Vimes is discovering this, he's knocked out from behind by someone who we don't see and then comes to in a weird kind of brutalist classroom where a door opens at the front and in comes a woman clad in armor whose arm is slightly on fire who takes off her helmet. It's Lady Sybil Ramkin. Oh my God, she's beautiful. Wait, it's just that classic. But not, not as we know her from the books. A very different character from the books. But kind of another one who I think is giving her all like not maybe not quite to the level of Richard Dormer, but I feel like this performance is the, is the one that comes closest to matching his level of energy. Mm. She's introduced as kind of a vigilante, but her vigilante thing is not catching criminals and handing them over to the cops. Instead, she kidnaps them, brings them to what I found out from watching the behind the scenes things is her basement. It's not really established in the, in the show and tries to re-educate them. And as it comes out, what the way that she re-educates them is basically to tell them that the whole guild system is wrong, that legalizing crime is not okay. And when they finally get it, she takes them to the edge of the city and tells them to run away, which I thought was really weird because the only thing we ever see about the outside of the city, and this is another thing that doesn't quite gel across the whole season, is it's an arid wasteland. And yet Carrot is supposed <laughs> to be from somewhere else. And there's a story later on in an episode a couple after this about a, a couple who go on this amazing adventure around the world where they mention a whole bunch of Discworld place names that we never see or hear about ever again. And yet the city is presented as if it's the only city in the entire world and there's just desert outside of it. It's weird. I missed all of this about Lady Sybil's doing this thing because basically he was like, stretching the alchemist, he clonked on the head, he was in this place and I was kind of like, I accept this because this show makes no sense. I just, he's there now. Um, I guess this is an official government program. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe I missed something and just forgot. I don't care enough to go back and find out. Um, so I did not understand that, that was what was going on. And I had frankly forgotten about that being how they met. I just assumed that I had just missed something and it wasn't worth digging into because if you dig into any element of the rest of the show, it, it all falls apart. So. I feel better that there was a reason for it, but I agree with you that it is 
chaotic and confusing and there's just too much stuff in there. There's just too much. And when I said earlier about like, oh, look, she's beautiful, it was that classic reveal of like when a when a motorcyclist in an action film like does all this stuff and then they take off their helmet and, oh, my God, it's a woman. It was kind of that, mm. but fast. Mm. Mm. I have a lot of things to say about Lady Sable. <laughs> Please say. So where do I start? I think that the main problem that I have with... Okay, so, okay, let me go back. So you said that it was filmed in South Africa. Yes. That makes sense to me because the writers are British. It's based on a British text. It's BBC America. And it's filmed in South Africa. And the South Africa aspect of it kind of makes sense in the aesthetic, almost, that they're working with, which I think is kind of interesting. But the identity of the show has completely gone off the rails because Terry Pratchett is such a British writer. He satirizes the things that he knows, which is Britain. And Lady Sybil is a quintessential British character. She is the British aristocracy, not as we in the colonies know it, but as the Brits know them. Mm. She She's essentially a horse breeder, a pommy horse breeder who doesn't know anything about anything. She lives in this ivory tower up a hill, and all she does, she's obsessed with, with, with swamp dragons. And it's like this hybrid uh, aristocracy Hagrid uh, character. <laughs> Um, where she loves this, this terribly dangerous, volatile thing. And that's all she does. That's all she sort of knows in this world. And it works because this is a satire. And I think one of the many failings of this particular series is that it forgets that it's a satire. Mm. It remembers and then it forgets and then it remembers and it forgets. It's trying to do a lot of things. And I think if you're, tr- if you're going to adapt a Terry Pratchett book, you need to have at the heart of it that it is a satire. If they had translated Lady Sybil to an American version of an aristocrat, then it would have worked. It would have been interesting. If they translated it to a South African version of what an aristocrat is, then it would have been interesting and would have worked. What they did is just made her a misc SJW like the Batman Batman is like it doesn't it just doesn't make sense. It makes sense because it's BBC America and they've girl bossified her. Um, <laughs> to suit an American audience, but that reach is, it's, it loses the identity of the show in doing so. And the reach is trying to pander to an audience that doesn't really watch this kind of show, that isn't really interested in this specific thing. Maybe they're interested in fantasy, maybe they're interested in action, maybe they're interested in procedurals, but this specific thing isn't their, their traditional audience. So I get why they've done it, and I can see the reasoning behind it, but it just doesn't work, it doesn't translate. And the biggest crew, I think this is probably a personal thing, the biggest frustration that I have about this particular character, I love the casting, I love that she's black, uh, I love that she's sort of this cool girl, I think that even though you have Angua, who's sort of filling that niche, I think it's interesting and nice to have not a white person play this role. In saying that, the perfect casting was Miranda Hart for this, even as written as a girl boss. Miranda Hart is the perfect casting for Lady Sybil because she's actually aristocracy. She's actually comedic. She's a funny, funny actor. And to put her in a girl boss role would have been gold. And she would have been able to match Vimes for what he is. The comedy would have been beautiful between the two of them. But on top of that, Miranda Hart is not gorgeous. 
in the way that Lady Sybil as cast is. Lady Sybil is beautiful and also so much younger than Vimes in this. And so Miranda Hart would have been so much more interesting and appropriate for this particular role. And I'm sad. I'm sad that they missed that particular opportunity. It was interesting to watch the fan reactions when it was first announced, right? Because a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, Shidoma looks like the Vimes in my head mostly. Like, he's a bit weird, but I can run with that. And Angua looks mostly like Angua in the books. Carrot looks exactly like I imagine Carrot in the books looks like. Cheery is tall, but otherwise, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, and she, she doesn't have a beard, but okay, I'm sure they're going to explain that. And then there's Lady Sybil, who looks nothing like the character in the book, behaves nothing like the character in the book, and she's described as being, you know, like of opera singer proportions in the book and having this sort of noble history of warrior queens in her past. And so she turns up with a battle axe and tries to fight some people off at her door, and there's all that kind of stuff. And people love her, and that's part of why, mm, is that yeah. she's that... And she's also that rare character in a Pratchett novel who's a fat character who there's not a whole bunch of fat jokes about, you know? And I think that a lot of people rightfully saw that as a bit of a an opportunity missed to, as you say, put that kind of actor in that kind of role where we never see them. And it would have been awesome to do a sort of blend of the book character with this character. Everyone was very conventionally attractive and that's not a comment against the actors in it, but everyone could have been a model slash actor in the most conventional sense mm. of like people I've seen in magazines growing up in the 2000s. And it was not a diverse looking crowd in, in that sense. Yeah. Mm. I think that's a factor of maybe it being made for American television because yeah. in the UK, you're much more likely to see people who look like quote unquote normal people on television and not like mm. models. Whereas mm. in America, it, that still is pretty rare. Um, mm. It doesn't happen often. Even in the rare show sitcoms, even in America, that are about people who are not reasonably wealthy. Normal people, they don't look like they've had $1,000 worth of dental work and $100 haircut every month and all that kind of stuff. Whereas here, yeah, everybody's very beautiful. <laughs> like but, but grimed up, so it's okay. You know. <laughs> they got a bit of dirt rubbed on them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so they're having a hard time. Patrick, what did you think, not being that familiar with the books, except maybe Guards, Guards, where we meet Sybil for the first time, what did you think of her? Yeah. Yeah, like, um, I read Guards, Guards so long ago that I couldn't remember a single character's name, for example. Um, so I actually did not realise that they were meant to be the same person. Probably for the best. Definitely Yes. So, you know, learning a lot. I didn't mind that her backstory was that her parents had been legally assassinated. That was actually one of the connecting points for me that I was like, great, we see some, you've established a, a far-fetched fantasy concept. What if assassination was legal? And then we got to see the, you know, the reality of the consequences of that. And it turned, and it took it from wacky concept to interesting sort of thing and it was actually one of the um that and the assassin's guild episode were actually my favorite bits yeah it gave, well as you were saying before it gave it some stakes and it also gives her a consistent yes. motivation which is yes. that she hates this whole idea of the guild yes. system of codifying and legalizing crime like stuff that everyone should agree is not okay like stealing and murder and making it yeah. officially sanctioned and her whole motivation yeah. always consistently is to take down that system. Mm. And she starts off by this yes. weird system of trying to re-educate the masses, but then through the watch sees an opportunity to seize power through the dragon and make it happen forcefully, which she ends up changing mm. her mind about 
for reasons that I don't think are entirely solved. But that's her consistent motivation, at least, and that worked for me. It's because she likes a boy. <laughs> that is kind of why, isn't it? Oh, God. Isn't that why all our yeah. motivations change on a dime? Uh, mm. Yeah. I guess that's How does she get him to her basement? Like, she's strong, but, like, I, I don't know if I could, like, carry a dude well, he weighs into my car. Well, he his diet is whiskey and he's very thin. But also, why? 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 Like, it's why is she re- re-educating him? He didn't really do anything clear. wrong. Well, I think... Well, I think... The pl- I, well, the plot asked for them to meet, so... And she knew that. Yeah, so. that's why. But I think the kind of vaguely hinted at reason, this is how I rationalize it anyway, is that she thought he was a guild assassin and killing that alchemist that she saw him with. Gotcha. So, how many people she mistakenly re-educated and put on the edge of the desert then? Well, this is my question, right? Because she gets him to leave the city into an arid wasteland filled with dangerous magical waste. Like, it's not... It's, to be fair, that's only one direction. <sighs> Okay, yeah, sure. The other directions are only seen to be other kinds of arid wasteland. <laughs> That's just arid wasteland. There's no magical death traps That's there. Fine. There's got to be some way to get to the plains and the mountains, right? Like, it's got fantasy geography written all over it. It's like, yeah, there's a pla- like, probably there's an icy north filled with people who look like Vikings in this version of the world. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Have you seen that, like, generic fantasy map that got shared around a few years ago? There's been a couple versions of it, and it's just, like, a map of a world with just generic descriptions of all the kinds of places you see in all these kinds of stories. And it reminded me a little bit like this, because they talk about these other places, never give us any detail, never really ground Ankh-Morpork in a wider world that makes sense. But they also don't confine the story totally to the city, which I think would have helped with that problem. (laughs) Like, if we never saw anything outside it, we never had characters who came from outside it, uh, but then we Except had the Carrot. problem that we'd have no outsider character. Yeah, exactly. And Even Carrot could have come from a, a, a part of the city that was sheltered. You know? Yeah, mm. and most of the watch are from outside of the city. Like, Angua, Chiri, and Carrot are all from outside. And even Detritus, like, we don't really know where trolls come from or if there are other trolls. We never see any other trolls. What's um, a troll? Yeah, what is a troll? We don't know. Anyway, they meet... Vimes tells her the truth, and that's actually one of the things I found refreshing about this show is that ever since, like, the sort of Buffy era, so much drama is generated in shows by characters just refusing to tell each other what the fuck's going on, right? That's that's where 90% of the drama comes from in modern television. This um, is what you and- get for putting straight people in charge of narratives, you guys. <laughs> yes. This is heterosexual nonsense. <laughs> yeah. But I like that in this show, that's not always the case. Like when she says, what's your deal? He says, I'm the captain of the watch. And she's dubious, which is fair given what he looks like. But then he tells her exactly what's going on. Like a guy that I saw die 20 years ago seems to be back and I'm trying to follow his trail. And she helps him. They go to see the goblins. Like it's, I, I, this is like the goblins. The goblins are fun. One of the Um, best parts, to be honest. Yeah, the whole little thing. captions and their whole side plot about their like uprising and unionizing, and it's just way more interested in the narrative that's going on with the goblins than anything else that's happening in the show. Make it about the goblins and the like, the husband who dies, but not really. Yeah. Oh, that one Thore line when like um, one of the goblins gets shot by a crossbow bolt, and one of the other ones goes, "That was my wife." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my yeah. I think that's one of my favorite elements throughout. It was the yeah. goblins are also weirdly one of the few things where they keep picking up the things that they put down for later. Yes. Like there's some great shelving comedy stuff going on with them that is just they don't follow through with that stuff anywhere else. 
It's like um, one person got to write a whole story and then was allowed to like lace it in throughout so yeah. that it had like internal logic. <laughs> when they go to the goblins, this is one of the places where I picked up, and I'm sure I didn't get all of them, but I, I wrote down quite a lot. There's a lot of little just very small nods to the books. Yeah. And one of them is that when you see the poster for goblins, goblin <laughs> recruiting, it's Tulip and Pin's Goblin Laborers or something like that. And I'm like, okay, that's nothing to do with the context of those names in the books, but it's nice to see them there. And that's the kind of thing that if you don't know it, it doesn't matter. If yeah. you do know it, it's just a, oh, look, it's a little Easter egg. And it's not confusing because it's just a name, like, and you yeah. know it's just a name. Whereas in other places, they use a name and it's something totally different. And you're like, why did you use this name? Yeah. But they follow the trail. They go to the place where Vimes and Casa grew up. They have an explosion and fall on top of each other, which is where we find out Sybil's hair is a wig, a detail that is in the books. And I was so glad that they kept that because it's mm. just a nice little bit. And it also means she has radically different hairstyles every episode. Mm. And actually, just on that, like, that made sense because she wears a wig. But I don't know about you, but I could not get a sense of how much time was meant to be passing in this show. Like, whether it was all the same week or whether, like, a month was passing. I, I just Never couldn't ever. Rock it. Maybe the same day, like, honestly. Yeah. I mean, some of it, yeah, is clearly immediately after. But any time they'd go to night and then back to day, I'm like, but is this the next day? Or is this, mm. like, a week later? I'm not really quite sure. And by the end of it, uh, there's a lot more... We, we, they feel much closer than it felt like they really should have got to, given the amount of time that they seem to have spent together and uh, the emotional kind of journey that they've been on. It's like I'll, speed, though. Like, it's the, the amount of trauma they've been through together, like, might accelerate the closeness. Mm. <laughs> That's a sure generous is. way yes, to look, sure. at, look at it. Yeah. <laughs> but look, the plot kind of continues with basically they follow the trail from the goblins from the explosion and they figure out, yes, Cass uh, has been stockpiling all this slab. It's being moved. They go and see Throat, the snitch. Um, I found that deeply annoying. Um, I for the first time I watched this, I didn't. I still don't entirely know if that's supposed to be cut me own throat, Dibbler. Well, it's the same. It's the equivalent character, but really nothing like the character in the mm. books. Just the name has been retained. Uh, and the vaguely sort of dodgy connection. I thought it was like Dibbler plus like Molly, the head of the Beggars Guild, plus something else is mm. what the character felt like to me. Mm. I mean, I thought she was fun. Like she was fine. Oh yeah, so it, she is fun, and I think it's funny that they advertised it as inclusive. So they've clearly gone out of their way to include as many types of character as possible, without actually going into what that character like. It's. I watched a show called Blind Spotting recently, and Blind Spotting is so clearly written by black people for black people, it puts colorblind casting to shame. It's a great example of why colorblind casting is bullshit. And I think that that's kind of uh, where we're at. And so it's funny that the watchers made the show and then put her in a wheelchair just because, and they don't really go into it. It's not really part of her thing necessarily. It's just like a, an interesting little representation, like a bone that they're throwing. Um, I wish that there had been more to that. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it was an odd choice. I'm not against it, but it was strange. It was sort of, uh, surreal to see. Yeah. And one of the things that occurred to me is like, okay, well, we, you haven't thought about the infrastructure of this for this character yeah, being yeah. in a wheelchair. But then also watching a lot of the scenes where they're walking around like the markets and stuff. Um, I found out that behind the scenes, it was shot in an old disused shopping center and there are a lot of ramps. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Huh. Well, maybe, maybe it's not so much. They, I don't know if they really thought about that, but it kind of does work on some yeah. level, but it's still, 
yeah, a bit weird. Now, this scene actually is one where I felt like um, where they go to see Throat and find out who has been stockpiling the slab because Throat is in charge of hanging onto it and moving it to where it's got to go. A detail that they don't really tell you directly enough, <laughs> I think. They have a bit where they're asking her if she knows anything about the slab and she says, slab, no, I wouldn't touch it. And captions appear with little arrows saying, this is slab, this is slab, this is slab, and this is slab. And I love that. I was like, mm. this is great. But then two seconds later, the characters wander over and look at it and smell mm-hmm. it and touch it and then tell each other that it's slab. And I'm like, no, pick one or the other. You are mm, trying yeah. to do two different gags and you've blown it already. Don't now waste my time doing the other one because those captions should be telling me what the characters in the show know so that I'm caught up with them and then they can behave accordingly. Or they should be telling me something that they don't know and won't mm. find out until it's too late. Instead, you're just telling me something I'm going to find out in five seconds anyway. Yeah. And this was the part where I was like, okay, how many of these people, and I haven't looked this up, have written comedy before? Because I feel uh, like they've got a lot of fantasy authors, or fa- hugely, authors, but yes. fantasy TV writers or drama TV writers, and they've asked them to write comedy because the comedy yeah. just didn't quite work. The comedy drove me mad, and I genuinely believe, and I can't can't back this up in any sense, but I genuinely believe that they had someone who at least aspired to a Pratchett style of humor, the moments where they hit it. And I've got a couple of examples, but like, I think the captions are a really good one because from what, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm very much a lay person with Pratchett, but from what I understand of Pratchett's humor, um, the absurd is pointing out the obvious and there can be nothing more funny than being as obvious as possible. Um, and that style of humor, I think is very funny. It's very British as Mm -hmm. well. And I truly believe that someone was there trying to make this a Pratchett style comedy. And then someone came in and said, I don't get this and tried to like cut them or add a different style of comedy, a more obvious style of comedy, um, you know, a very sitcom-y style of comedy into it. And it meant that we got a lot of exactly what you talk about there, which um, in sketch writing we call a hat on top of another hat, yes. which is where <laughs> it's not funny to have two hats. It's only funny if you have one hat. So just choose one of the hats. Yeah. yeah um, I suspect, oh. again, that this is BBC America butting up against a British writing team. Uh, because the BBC America, that style of comedy is so different to British comedy. And so they're trying to do two things at once. If BBC had done it instead of BBC America, I think we would have had a very different show and a much better show, to be honest, because then it would have been cohesive. Um, uh, but I think you're right about, I don't know. I got the, I don't want to assert anything, but I got the feeling like the writers were chosen for their TV prowess, not for their love of Terry Pratchett and not for their comedy. And that's not, this is such a difficult, interesting text to work with. You need to have the perfect connection of multiple of all of those three things to make an adaptation of this work. And I just don't think it did. My favorite gag in the entire show was at the Assassin's Guild with Bad Steph. Yes. (laughs) What's my name's Steph. What's your guild name? Bad Steph. Yeah. <laughs> you've just added. You've just added bad, bad to Steph. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is so funny, and I love it so much that I decided that it was a direct pull from no, the book. No, no entirely no. an invention. The assassins in the book go by their own names. They don't have secret names. There's not. The assassins guild mm. is very little like it is in the books. Okay, but I, I love that too. It. The the stupid names. 
Although, do you Karen think, from finance? Do you think they know Karen from finance is like because she predates the show? <laughs> she does predate the show. I was like, I actually had to go and Google that because I was like, wait, is. Is Karen this a from reference? finance a Pratchett fan? Yeah. Like, so, listener, you know. if you're not familiar, one of Australia's more famous drag queens is Karen from finance. Was Karen on the Australian drag race? Yes. The train wreck yes, that was. was Australian drag race? Let's not yes. go into that. That's a whole other podcast. Nightmare. Um, yeah. But anyway, Karen from finance, famous Australian drag queen. So, it was very funny for us watching this and going... This is a very different Karen from finance. Yeah. I wish they'd gotten actual Karen from <laughs> finance to, um, to play that. It would have been very funny. I didn't know about the drag queen. I found it funny just as a name. <laughs> well, I was I mean, like, oh, that's a great assassin name, like Karen from finance. Yeah. Didn't know the context at all. So I was just enjoying it's, it anyway. It's a, it's a great assassin name. It's an equally great drag name. Uh, you know, it, the, the gag works. <laughs> In both instances, I'm sure someone has said, Karen from finance, you cold bitch. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although later on, when Dr. Chris is head of the Assassin's Guild, um, also gender swapped in this version, played by one of my favorite comic actors, Ingrid Oliver. She tries to explain something to her and she's like, no, put away the spreadsheet and just show me. And I'm like, why does she have a spreadsheet? There's no computers in this world. <laughs> what is <laughs> happening? <laughs> um, yeah, it was just another one of those weird things where they made the gag, but they didn't mm. think about what that said about the world or the world building that they were doing by saying that and yeah. making things more confusing. But um, apparently the actor who plays Karen from finance also plays one of the goblins. Yeah, she's a stunt performer. Um, so mm. yeah, she plays one of the goblins and d- did all her own fight scenes. Cool. Nice. Yeah. And where's, we got it. The assassins have, we're sort of talking about this now, but the assassins also have a thing in the show where they all wear fancy masks. And Karen from Finance's mask is this sort of weird. It's like someone splashed water on her face and then frozen it into plastic. And then the plastic has little letters stenciled on it. It's quite an extraordinary bit of design. Like, we'll have to find a, mm. a, a still of it and put it in the episode notes because it's amazing. The Assassin's stuff was just... I love the Assassin's Guild. Yeah. yeah. Again, nothing like the books. And I think sometimes the strength of this show is when they go, let's do our own Assassin's Guild. What's our Assassin's Guild like? And they just go off and do their own thing. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and they didn't connect it to the Clowns Guild, which I thought was a good subversion of expectations. Yeah. And it meant they could get the the whole musicians thing in because as which the, they did a bit much. Well, because we can connect this plot up. I think we'll we're gonna go not so detailed on the plot now. We've kind of got the main thread. So Cass has come back. Mm. What does he want? What well, seems like he who wants knows? to. Well, we don't <laughs> know at the start because uh, we don't know who's we don't know we what still the deal don't know, is. Really, Vimes and Sybil like basically wait for someone to come and get the slab so they can find out who it is and see if Casa turns up. A bunch of goblins turn up and take the slab away, but they leave something behind the book from the library that they're supposed to be looking for and which Casa then shows up to take. So he's stolen all this slab and traded it with someone for the book stolen from the library. And before they can figure out why he wants it, there's a confrontation. The episode ends there. And I actually thought the first episode, because it begins and ends with the sort of Vimes talking to death, I thought they were setting up that the whole season was going to be like his Mm. life story flashing behind his eyes, leading Mm -hmm. up to a moment where he was going to maybe actually die. But maybe then, an early draft it was. Maybe, yeah. Mm. And th- but then that's not what they do. But it does carry over into the start of the second episode because what happens is he puts himself in front of Sybil as Casa fires his crossbow bolt. But then in a weird thing, it doesn't really make any sense because of the timing involved. Like you see Detritus running in in slow motion while the crossbow bolt is being fired. I'm like, how far away is he? And he jumps Slowest in front. Slowest crossbow bolt ever. And then gets like 
seven crossbow bolts to the back and, and dies. Yeah. Uh, we and should Carson be nothing to a troll. Yeah, that it's we've made this character big and rocky, but he's just going to die. And you're like, why? <laughs> we never get to see what he could do or who he is. or It's just, yeah, a bit disappointing. But the watch turns up because they followed their own thread, eventually investigating a crime, which is a body dumped in a fountain. Turns out to be another alchemist. They get a fingerprint, which shows them that Casa really is alive. And then somehow, and I don't think the dots are really quite connected properly here, somehow they know where to find Vimes and Sybil. Um, I think they do explain it in a line or two of dialogue later because mm. they, they talk about calling for backup, but they can't because there's no clacks here, which is kind of world building, but also kind of baffling, I think, to most people. Uh, and so Sybil sends her little dragon, who she's already used to set some people on fire, away. And she does, I mean, I do like Good Boy. The design is very cute. He's like a sort of little spiny lizard, but with wings. And he fits in the palm of your hands. He's much smaller than the ones in the book. Mm. Um, and much more like a traditional dragon because he can fly and, you know, breathe fire out of his mouth. He's just very, very small. And she sends him off to get help somehow from somewhere. We don't know where. Maybe that's how the watch found them. I don't think it's really explained. They just turn up. Um, but too late to save Detritus, who dies. And then that sets them on this sort of mission to find out what does Castle want with this book? Um, which takes them through a whole bunch of stuff, some of which is from the books. They go to Unseen University to visit the library, which is wonderful. What a great design and a set. Mm. But again, you know, they do their own thing with it, which I was like, I, this is cool. Like, it's nothing like the books. Like, the university is this society of wizards who steal ideas from Roundworld and turn them into this sort of weird magic-fueled technology that powers the city, which we never really find that much out about. And it's kind of like a... It, <laughs> It's a very literal interpretation of the narrative excuse, wizards did it, which I think is kind of what they're leaning on. Like, mm. yeah, there's wizards magic powering everything. So that's why it's weird. And you're like, okay, sure. Um, but yeah, the, the arts chancellor was fun. Uh, yeah, that was a good him. scene. Great. Also uh, his affliction. I enjoyed the fun throwaway of like they were waiting and the guy wasn't showing them through and it just turned out he was dead at his desk. And someone was like, why didn't <laughs> yeah. you notice that he was that? I thought was like funny. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole thing where the arch chancellor can't swear. Uh, yes. He, whenever he oh, tries, yeah. it just makes weird musical noises. Yeah. That was great. Funny as well. Yeah. And that actor is great. Um, again, nothing like the book's depiction of wizards. And so they've just sort of gone their own way with Unseen University. And the only thing that's similar is that they keep the librarian. But now the story of the librarian is that he uses this special magical reading room that allows you to understand and read any text or indeed anything, including people, uh, which I thought was a cool kind of magical side effect. But for some reason, that also means he turns into an orangutan when he uses it too much. Well, isn't that like if you have too much empathy, you turn into an orangutan? Like that's just a well-known <laughs> fact. <laughs> I'll buy it. I'll buy it. <laughs> no, wasn't it, wasn't it that it made things simpler? Oh, yeah. that's, that's mean to orangutans. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. It's, I put, yeah. Not entirely convincing, but sure, whatever. No, it's I'll go with tenuous. you on that one, sure. That leads to some nice moments in that room where initially Cheery and Angua sort of get some insight into each other that they're not ready for. I, I actually mm. quite like that scene. That was nice. I actually quite like this second episode because it kind of has a natural, it was a little bit like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels in like they managed to do a good job of two plot threads that meet for very good reason. Mm. And one is that we find out that the person who's stolen the book is Wants, who works as a cleaner at the university because they won't let her be a wizard. It's never said that women can't be wizards. And in fact, it kind of is implied that they can because lots of people refer to her as, oh, she's some kind of a wizard. 
Um, mm. So it's not entirely clear why they won't let her be a wizard. Maybe mm. because she's from the streets or something. Maybe it's a fancy boy university like in the old days where only men could go. Mm. Like maybe that specific university is like that, but it's theoretically in the mm. other cities that don't exist, universities that will educate women wizards. Yeah, mm. could be. Or it could just be a class thing, you know, she has, like... She's not a guild member. Well, she doesn't have the money to get into an Ivy League university. So she's yeah. working there as a cleaner, as an opportunity to learn from all their books. And she's a very accomplished wizard. She does a lot of cool magic in the show. And I really liked, actually, once, who we only sort of meet in this second episode properly. Mm. This is one of the many instances of taking a name from the books for a completely different character. Yeah. Yep. In the books, once is a scheming second to the patrician who wants to use the dragon to depose him and establish a new order and leads a group of cultists who are basically men's rights activists, uh, as we discussed <laughs> in our episode about the book. But she's completely different to that. And she ends up working with Casa. She was in their gang and doesn't understand why he's come back so much younger. She must have been a lot younger than him, I think, because they don't seem that different in age, but he's been gone 20 years. So I'm like, okay, how old were you at the time? Uh, Must be weird. But she's like such an accomplished wizard. She must have been at the university for quite a long time. So maybe she just looks young. Mm. Yeah, maybe. I reckon we're going to have to blitz through quite a lot of plot points um, because there's so much we could discuss, but so little time, unfortunately, because we can't do all of it. Well, let's summarize. The main plot thread is we discover that Casa wants the book because it will allow him to summon a dragon and destroy the city. And he does use it to summon the dragon, but he can't control it. And then it turns out that in order to control the dragon, you don't just need the book. You need three artifacts. Although I have to admit, it didn't seem like it was multiple artifacts. It seemed like it was just one. And then later on, everyone acts like, oh, it was three artifacts all along. And I'm like, I don't think you said that earlier. Or if you did, you really didn't flag it well enough because I was confused. But anyway, it becomes a chase for these three different artifacts. The first one is a talking sword. Um, which they have to investigate the Assassin's Guild to find. It ends up being in two pieces. One part is in an Assassin's Tomb and the other part is with that Assassin's... Delightful old folks home. Yeah. And the character who has it is Jocasta Wiggs, which is, again, a name taken from the books, completely different character. The only thing they have in common is that they're both Assassins. And that episode is quite a delight where they go to the, the magical old person's home. The best part of which is at the threat of violence, there's a curse on the place that (laughs) turns on disco balls and then plays music and makes everyone dance to get their feelings out so they don't feel violent anymore. The only weird part was they used Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go for the music. And I'm like, don't use a real song from our world. This is very confusing now. But I also loved it. I had leaned into the confusion by that point. I was like, nothing makes sense. Sure, there's just like a banger from like Round World in here. Why not? Because, I mean, maybe it drifted in across the arid sea, which drops in treadmills and all kinds of stuff. Who knows? Well, they do that several times. Like The first episode has Walk Like an Egyptian in it. I mean, it's an instrumental cover, but it's, yeah. They're trying to evoke this sort of punk aesthetic. But they hardly ever use any actual punk music. They use a lot of classic rock music. But what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, stuff. They played at the baseball between things. Yeah, it's it's like they're not using real punk. They're using what people who don't know anything about punk would think of as punk. I think. Yes, that's sure. That's fair. Yeah. Really quick diversion into the Musicians Guild bit. I enjoyed that, even though it was like unnecessary except for fun. At the end, when Sybil sings, when the assassins come to get them, I um, crawled into a ball inside myself and sort of died because I hate when people unexpectedly sing. <laughs> and it's supposed to be like a nice thing, but actually it was just terrible and I hated it and I wish it wasn't in the show. Because mm. there's a rule that guild members are not allowed to attack other guild members. And so they, mm. they've all joined the Musicians Guild to infiltrate into the assassins. Meaning they have to audition, so they play a song, and I found out that those were the actual actors 
playing and singing the instruments. Cool. Oh, good. Not just visually, but on the soundtrack as well. The gold song was fine. Yeah, the, the gold, gold song, song was great. Good. Yeah. Loved it. And then at the end, when they come to get them at the Watch House, Sybil has to sing to prove that she's also a Guild member. Yeah, a lot of people found that a bit weird because she's also singing a song that has a huge emotional impact in the books. Mm. But in the TV series, it's just something that Vimes is singing in his sleep and they never explain it or give it any further weight than that. <laughs> Deeply weird for her to like be like, oh, I heard you singing this song in your sleep. I'm going to sing it now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also not the same as the song in the book either. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's just using some of the same words. So it's very weird. Very weird. So funny. Uh, but as that yeah. plot line progresses, if we can summarize it, the first artifact is the talking sword played by, as we said, Matt Berry, who's very funny, but also very meta. Like, he's always commenting on the narrative and and his position in it. There's a great gag in one of the later episodes where he says, look, you know, I'm criminally underused for exposition. And and he says to the goblin, and you're just a cheap allegory that doesn't really work. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, that's true. Don't point out the show's flaws. That seems rude. Uh, But it was also funny. So they find the sword. They realize the second artifact is a crown, a miner's helmet crown. That's held in the dwarf's realm in the dark, in the dark, which is what Cheery ran away from. And so there's a whole episode of Cheery and Angua and Carrot going to the mine where Cheery grew up to go into the dark and find it. And that's where we get her whole backstory that that mining community of, of dwarfs believes that everybody has to be the same all the time. There's no he or she. They is one of the ways they put that. Everyone has to have, grow a beard because if you're different, the dark comes to get you and takes you away. And they think that's scary. And then the point of the episode is to say, no, 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 the dark is coming to liberate you and rescue you and send you off into the multiverse where you can be whatever you want to be, wherever you need to be. I think it had one of the good jokes at the beginning of that whole sequence, which was, we don't have nine minutes to say my name. And then like it cuts to like nine minutes later when she's still saying her name. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. They get the helmet, but Casa gets it first. They're not sure what's going on with the third artifact, except Casa has decided that it's Carrot. Now we have had no... No prior sort of flagging of this part of the story, but they basically say, yeah, it's you. Read the inscription on the helmet, and it kind of implies that the three artifacts are the sword, the crown, and the blood of the person bearing those things. And they say, yeah, it's you. You're the last of the noble bloodline. And it's not really clear why they think that is. Like, they don't really establish it. But it does make a kind of narrative sense to Carrot, because he's like, oh, this is why I was thrown down a mine shaft. Now my life makes sense, because... You know, I'm the secret heir to the throne that someone wanted to get rid of. But then it turns out that's not the case. He does not have Octoron in his blood. He is not of the noble line. And they have to look elsewhere. They eventually figure out the third artifact isn't a person at all. It's the original watch captain's badge that was forged by the king who was in charge of all this and whose blood was spilt on it when he was killed. That was kind of weird, to be honest. Very convoluted, isn't it? Yeah. Wasn't there something about what if it's Vimes and he's noble? There's a moment where Wands has got a detector that can detect if something's the artifact. And she uh. points it at a couple of people she thinks it might be. Because they think it might be Sybil at one point when they find out it's not Carrot. Because she's apparently the last noble left alive. And I was like, oh, does that mean there's going to be like a plot thread where all of the normal aristocracy have been killed by the assassins? Which is why it's all the guilds who are in charge now. But they never go anywhere with that. It's just a throwaway kind of Yeah, line. yeah, yeah. Like so many things. But then she points it at Vimes and the silence happens, which indicates he's an artifact. And for a moment, they're like, maybe he's the noble one. See, I missed all of this. I Yeah. Because so many things didn't go anywhere. But then it turns out, no, it's because he's wearing the badge, which is the, yeah. the artifact. So, yeah. 
while this is all going on, before we get to the end, there's a couple of subplots happening. One of which is we find out the reason Cass is doing all this is that when he fell off the university tower, he got hit by lightning and transported into the future. Now, we never see any of this future stuff, and it's only brought up a couple of times. But he sees the future. He finds out that the Watch inspire the people and create a whole new world, and Carrot becomes the king. And because he's in the future, he's sort of out of place. And these beings from outside space and time called the Observers see him, pluck him out, and go, we're going to send you back to where you came from. But you have to destroy that city and destroy the Watch or we're going to erase you from existence. Now, their motivation for doing this is pretty muddy. It seems like they don't like the fact that it's supposed to be different in every part of the multiverse, but there's a consistent thread where every version of the watch rises and inspires the people and is always the same. Like, that's always the end of their story, and they don't like that. And I'm like, that's a weird motivation for people who are supposed to be all about order and stuff. Like, surely they should like that, but they don't. And this is one of the other things. This series draws on ideas from so many places across the Discworld series of books. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> like, why? You know, there's 41 of these books. Don't use 12 of them in your one uh, season of eight episodes. That seems insane to me. Like, lay some foundations for later stories. Leave yourself somewhere to go. But they've already used up, like, stuff from Soul Music, from three or four different watch books, from the death books with the auditors who are now called the Observers, and who have a cool, I did like the design of their realm, which is all filing cabinets infinitely going up and down. But anyway, they tell Castle, you've got to do this, you've got to destroy the city by summoning the dragon, or we're going to erase you from existence because that's going to fix whatever our problem with the watch is. And it gets to a point where he does get all the artifacts, he does summon the dragon, but instead of being able to control it, it eats the artifacts and does whatever it wants. And this is resolved in the end, by them realizing that this song that Good Boy, the little dragon, has been singing this whole time is a song calling out to the big dragon, and they decide that they're going to amplify that song by doing a rooftop rock concert of playing the song, which we now realize, if we hadn't already, is the theme song to the TV show. That's going to get the dragon's attention, and they're going to send Good Boy off, which they do, and then he falls in love with the dragon, and they explode in a rainbow, and everything is fine. Except for the kind of epilogue where Sam and Sybil are supposed to be getting together, but once, who is pissed off because she gets betrayed by Cass, so she gets stabbed in the guts by him, and she helps the Watch find him because she doesn't agree with what he's doing anymore. But then when he gets erased from existence because he fails, history is rewritten so that she is the villain. But for some reason, she remembers the original timeline. And she's so pissed off by this that she manages to contact the observers and ask them for power so she can get revenge on the watch, even though she knows it's not their fault, right? It's the observer's fault. It's their fault. So her change in motivation made no sense to me whatsoever. Like, I get that she felt betrayed and it was horribly unfair what happened to her, but then the fact that she turns on them rather than the observers just did not make any kind of emotional or logical sense to me. I thought it was consistent with the rest of the series in which the rest of the series didn't make any emotional or logical sense. Though. <laughs> Look, you make Harsh, a good point. <laughs> fair. Mm. And then the last thing that happens, they set up for a second season where once uses the powers she gets from the observers, she makes Vimes disappear in the same way that the observers made Casa disappear into their realm whenever they felt he wasn't doing his job. And the last thing that we see is Vimes in the Observer's Realm looking around going, where the fuck am I? What's going on? But anyway, that's the basic plot of the show. There's one whole episode where in order to try another way of changing the Watcher's place in the multiverse, 
the observers find quote unquote the worst version of Sam Vimes and they swap him with our version of Vimes and there's this sort of parallel stories about what's going on in the other universe where Casa and Vimes basically had the opposite roles in the story and then a few of the other characters are swapped around as well. It's funny, it's weird, there's a great bit where the other Vimes is being coached to talk more like the Vimes that we're familiar with and they're like, yeah, talk more like a pirate, you know, a bit more R and he just like, I didn't think it would be possible but he actually turns it up to even more ridiculous (laughs) levels to take the piss out of himself and I actually really got a kick out of that. I've talked for a very long time there, but I think I've summarized the whole season. <laughs> I think um, you yeah. did it. What do we want to say about it? I really liked Cheery bringing in um, the tiny blue men, like that little reference to the Feagles, like just a throwaway thing. I just, that, that I was like, yes, to that. Mm. There's a lot of bits like that. There's a lot of good little yeah. throwaway gags, like Trevor the pixie in the corner of your eye. Or, um, you know, when they talk about death and ghosts and Cheery's like, yeah, it's like there's two goth ghosts that are always trying to get me to join their band. And you're like, that's funny. Like, I was Mm. into that. That tells me something about the world, that this supernatural shit happens and people treat it as mundane. And yet that's not quite what they're trying to tell us. But that gag worked for me. I don't know. Yeah, me too. Mm. Well, maybe we should do favorite and or least favorite bits, because I feel like we might have a bit of both for this show. Mm. Um, what are some, let's start with the negative so we can end on a positive. What are, what are people's least favorite things about this show? Gosh, where to it's start? It's hard to summarize. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, mine's easy. I already did the rant about Sybil. That's, that's my least favorite part of the show personally. Fair enough. I think the thing that is more nebulous, like that, the thing I'm going to say is you could see through all of it, moments of the promise it had poking through, mm. like you can see that it could have been great. Like, with the cast they had and some of the writers who were clearly fighting for something, you could see the potential there. And seeing that repeatedly thwarted, I think, was the worst thing for me mm. because it would been better if it was completely terrible and irredeemable because you can be like, oh, well, they'll do something else. But seeing that it could have been good was worse. Yeah, mm. yeah uh, we've, we've already talked about this in a bit of detail, but definitely the thing that kind of put me offside with this show, which is sort of the important thing, was the fact that they were not consistent with what level of comedy they were doing, not even just in the sense of tonally it didn't match up, but also they were inconsistent in that they would second-guess their own jokes, mm. literally to the point of punchline ruined, you know, mm. and that just made me really upset and frustrated. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they'd ever heard of the rule of threes either because, like, there were some bits that were like, Oh, you had three. That was three. Yep, that was funny three times. Oh, you're doing it eight times. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Why? What's happening? It was just really structurally strange, some of the comedy stuff. And I think mm. they. it feels like they, don't, they were trying to do two things. And uh, Simon Allen, who was the lead writer and, and, you know, creator of the series, I don't think has run a series before from what I could see mm. of his credits. I think the closest he'd come to running a whole show was he seems to have been the head writer for the third season of The Musketeers, like the modern BBC one from about 2016, which is kind of, you would hate it, Patrick, it's a little bit steampunky, Um, but um, not as much as the (laughs) film that came out a few years back. But that's like an adventure show that has comedy moments in it. And it feels like this show is trying to be that and an actual comedy. And you were talking about stakes. The stakes are hugely different in a comedy and a drama. Yes. In In a comedy like the characters are traditionally fairly simple, not necessarily two-dimensional, but they generally are fairly straightforward. We can understand who they are and they don't change. They don't have a lot of growth or change over time, particularly in a sitcom, Mm. less so in other kinds of comedy. 
Whereas in a drama, the opposite is true. Like you, you have to have multiple layers to the characters. They have to be consistent in who they are, but they can change over time. Whereas comedy characters don't change as much usually. Well, it's interesting. So there's a great Dan Harmon creator community and various other shows essay where he talks about what it is about stakes and comedy characters in terms of growth and that sort of thing. And what it is, is not so much that they don't change. It's just that they always have one core unchangeable truth about them. Mm. So in community, there's always one thing about each of those characters that no matter how hard, no matter what the world throws at them, will not change. And actually, a lot of the comedy and a lot of the growth is that they often want to change that thing about mm. themselves or the world will want to change that thing about themselves. None of these characters or a very few of these characters had an unchangeable truth about them. Vimes was the closest. He had a um, an uncorruptible moral truth about mm. him mm. himself. But each of those characters should have been pushed in comedy terms to change something about themselves and have them always snap back to that mm. one thing. And that's, that's what makes it funny. And that's what makes character growth for a comedy character didn't happen. Yeah. Well, I think as well, satire sits in a particular space with comedy where the characters can change. They just need to change into a different form of satire. So, you know, you could have Vimes go from this washed up policeman to an attempted, like a, a co-opted aristocrat, but the comedy is where the punch is being landed. So I think that there's definitely scope for both comedy and drama to be true of these characters. It just, once again, you need to remember that this is a satire and that that's the truth of the show. That's the, tr- that's the heart. That's what you're aiming for. Uh, and not to forget that, not to get lost in the weeds about, you know, whatever whimsical idea comes across your brain and sort of saying, yes, let's do that then. Yeah, I think it never gets, I think it does fail on the satire front more broadly too, though, mm, because it's it not does, really yeah. clear what they're trying to satire. No. Um, because so much of it is confusing. And the central message of the show, which they say again and again, they're always talking about how, what they you know, they're going to make people believe and they're going to give people hope and love. But what they're making people believe in is never really clear. And that they are, in fact, making anyone believe is also not very clear. Um, But I quite like that as a setup for a second series that does play on the Terry Pratchett thing of belief is what, you know, powers the world. mm. So if people believe, then they can believe in whatever. And so it creates this chaos. And maybe that's what, like, I like that if that's where they were going because that's quite clever. But I don't think that that's where it was going. I don't. I could believe it, but more likely less generous. Yes, if that is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I think we've had plenty of negative things to say. Are there any bits that we haven't discussed that really stood out that you really loved? The typewriter thing, like they mentioned, like oh, you know, the typewriter blows up if you press this key, and then a couple of scenes later, like Carrot has tried to use the typewriter and it's all blown up because he's yeah. tried to use that key, and then it comes up again later. And I think they did only do that three times. So I feel like that was a, a nice <laughs> continuous joke that I could enjoy safely. Well, having said that, in later episodes, and I'd forgotten about that bit when I saw this, but I was like, what's with all the typewriters? Because when they're out in the magical desert, there's a tree that just has all these dead typewriters hanging from cords. And then there's a whole stand of like typewriters on sale. And there's a whole like bucket of dead typewriters in another. And I'm like, oh. That's like four episodes after you've made that joke. No wonder I didn't make that. Long. <laughs> but like, but I like that as a kind of an Easter egg, not hammering you over the head with it. So that's yeah, kind of yeah. yeah. Rare so I like the typewriters. That was funny. and the goblins. 
Patrick already said my favourite thing of that's my wife. Yeah. I kept laughing about that like <laughs> in the episode after you mentioned it. My, it my should have not been funny anymore. My favourite thing was hands down the goblins and it, largely because of all the revolution talk um, mm. about and like unionising and like all of this sort of low-key Marxist theory that's sort of brimming to the side of the main plot. I think it would have been funnier if the main plot was to do with like capitalism or aristocracy war or something like that mm. um i really wish that the show had just been them and that all of the the main plot of guards guards was going on in the background whilst they were trying to organize a union in a sort of society that literally doesn't know what they're saying you know i think that that would have been a beautiful maybe a web series but a beautiful series regardless <laughs> A union for hired thugs, which is what they're doing <laughs> yes, as a job. Yes, See, that's yes. a funny concept in itself. Yeah. Uh, particularly because there already exists a whole guild system and presumably they look after their members because, like, the assassins seem to be doing pretty well. But that has no connection to what's going on with the goblins at all. It's very weird. Oh, man. I Look, I liked a lot of bits. There's a lot of good dialogue. I read a review that talked about putting some of the favorite lines in, and telling people about them is quite difficult because without the performance behind them or the context of what was going on in that moment of the episode, a lot of them don't make a lot of sense. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But I think for me, my favorite thing about the whole show is definitely Vimes. Like I love mm. the goblins too, but the whole Vimes thing and just his put upon face. Like, And the way that there are moments where it really works, where he's trying to do the right thing and everyone is like just not paying him attention or, or giving him any respect. And you're like, yeah, I feel for you, buddy. Like, I get it. I get what you're trying to do. I liked that a lot. Look, we've gotten through a lot. We should try and get through a few listener questions before we go, if we can. <laughs> that We got so many. I don't think we can go through yeah. all of them, but what can we get through, Liz? So basically, we got a lot of great questions. Some of them we've already answered across the course of the podcast, and some of them we won't be able to get to, but we'll do a cross-section of them. So why don't we start with one from a chew and a sneeze who wrote a great thread, but I'd like to start with the question, who was your favorite character and why was it Cheery? <laughs> <laughs> Cheery is great. Cheery is great. And I think in many ways the soul of the show, she's the smart one. Like she's always mm. fixing all the problems that they have. She has a journey that we can understand and a motivation that we can understand. And she has fucking cool outfits <laughs> like, mm. uh, and just a cool aesthetic and also a wonderful transformation across the mm. course of the eight episodes. Um, you just want to be friends with her. She's like the one in there that you're like, I want to hang out with you. Mm. And I like that, you know, one of the things that is kind of thrown away, but the, uh, Wayne, the sword, says that only lovers can hear him, which he clarifies to mean if you've got love in your soul. And the other people who can hear him mostly are people who are clearly going to couple up in the future. Mm. But Cheery can hear him just fine. And she does mm. not have a romance plotline. And when one sort of rears its head, she's like, no, thank you. Like, you were going to kill me. We're not yeah. having a redemption. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. yes. That was really lovely too. Yeah. There's another one from Des via Twitter. Did you have a how dare you moment? Oh, look. Um, like the whole of episode one. <laughs> no, look, I think I think the closest thing to a how dare you for me was death because while mm. I enjoyed the kind of character that they did, the death in the books is such a there's something really special about that version of death. The way that he is not human and he's divorced from that human experience, but still cares deeply and does a good job because you know that's the right thing to do. That really is so important to the character and, and also to other really great versions of death, like say Neil Gaiman's one as well. 
But this version of Death was just kind of a jerk and was just pissed off that no one thought about him, was very self-centered and didn't really go anywhere. And also I really didn't understand why he kept showing up because he also seemed to be really bad at his job. He kept turning up Mm. going, are you going to die? Like, I don't know. Can you tell me? And I'm like, who is this Death? (laughs) So while I enjoyed that take on the character, I also was just like, but why? Yeah. My how dare you moment is also revolving around death. And it was purely because of the fact that they used him as the narrative setup in that first two episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, as if we were going to have the entire thing told from the perspective of death talking to Vimes in retrospect. And then they chucked it out with no consequence in the second episode. Like, that was so poorly thought out and a sort of a letdown in sense of, like, you know, a good narrative structure should be the spine of a story. And they basically just broke the back in the second episode. I was just, like, from a narrative perspective, I was like, oh, no, how dare you? (laughs) And then also, like, they bring in the summoning dark and they use it to give Cheery superpowers, which she uses at the end of that episode to save everyone. And then it's never mentioned again. (laughs) Anytime they're in peril, she builds a machine to knock down a wall and makes them play a concert on top of a building before using any of her amazing superpowers. Uh, It it was very weird. Um, So next question comes from Patrick O.D. via Discord. What did you think of the show's aesthetic? Hardly Pratchettian, but did it have merit in its own right? I think so. I liked the way there's ways that they changed it. They tried to make it their own and they did make it their own. And I know that it's unfaithful and it would irk other people, especially if they wanted to see the vision in their head on the screen. But I like that they diverged from that in this particular way because I think that it put their stamp on it. And I'm okay with that personally. Yeah, I agree. I think if they had told less story in this season, mm. I think this is basically the problem with the show. Like you're saying, they try to do so much in eight episodes. If they'd just gone, let's just do one fairly simple story. We can bring in the more complicated stuff later. Let's just try and get this right first. It would have given them a bit more time for world building because I really like the look, but there was so much about it that didn't make sense that even as someone who is very familiar with the books, like that didn't help me to make sense of the world mm. of the TV show. And I think if they'd given themselves a bit more room to explain it a bit more by showing, not telling, preferably, it would have been even better. But I like the visual look a lot. Like it just does not look like any other show that I've yeah. seen. And I liked that a lot. Um, the next question comes from Matthew Rodeo via Instagram. What other TV genre would you like to see in the watch merged with? Mm. I mean, it's already police, fantasy, comedy. Uh, I don't know. What else? Matthew had a, the follow-up comment. I think they'd be fun as the crew of a spaceship were stranded on an island. Mm. Oh, I see where he's going. Right. If you're going to yeah. reinvent it, why not take it further? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's already set up in essentially a kind of poorly done Firefly or Guardians of the Galaxy structure, you know, like it's the misfits who come together and, you know, learn to love themselves or whatever. So I could easily see it in <laughs> in either of those. Yeah, without the structure of an ordered universe around them, as mm. you were saying before, like that's kind of what's missing. Like what are they pushing against? The whole mm. world is kind of messed up and misfit. Mm. Why are they any more misfit than anybody else, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I could see you turning Ankh-Morpork, this version of Ankh-Morpork, into like a space station um, mm. or like a po- it could be post-apocalyptic. Like I think that the visuals already make it feel like that. Like it could be mm. post-magical apocalypse. I feel like that's a genre we don't see enough of, like the, the magical mm. apocalypse, like rather than the real world one, like really making it a bit more of an allegory where like, you know, wizards destroyed the world or something. I love that. You don't Me see too, it on TV yeah. very much. We did get a comment from Graham Kidd on Twitter 
wondering if the TV and film adaptations of Douglas Adams' stuff were a big influence. And the thing this most reminded me of in terms of tone is probably the Netflix series of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, mm. which is nothing like the books. But in that instance, I felt it did a better job of preserving the kind of heart and soul of the idea Mm. even though they took it in such a different direction and none of the characters are really anything like any of the book characters and they hardly even reuse many of the names from the book. Whereas here, I feel like they kind of got that heart, but they didn't really express it well or take it enough in their own direction to make it work as well as that. But I still I still, I still, want to make it clear. I had a good time. I, I had fun watching this. Yeah, so there's like a lot of great questions about like stuff that we've talked about across the episode, but here's another question pulling out from Kelly Houlihan via Twitter. Um, which meeting between book and TV characters would be the most interesting, do you think? So like, I guess their book self meeting their like TV show uh-huh. version and how that would go, which I think would be an interesting sort of thing between, <laughs> to try to sort of have a time, I suspect. <laughs> Veterinary, I reckon. Oh, that'd be interesting. Because mm. they're kind of on the same level in some ways and they're not in other ways. Yeah, yeah. They'd spend the whole time trying to suss each other out and not be able to, I reckon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sybil and Sybil, because they're so different. Mm. I feel like book Sybil will be like, I, I just, I don't think they'd think much of each other. No. Mm. Mm. I think TV Vimes and later books Vimes, mm. because I think like taking the multiverse concept further, both of them are aware that that exists and having them meet each other and sort of discussing their very different backstories and what's happened to them, I feel like there's a core where they would get on and that would kind of make a fun kind of buddy cop story, but it would be very strange. Or any of the ones that have the name that doesn't line up with their <laughs> characters, like once meeting once, being like, excuse me. Um, I think Cheery and Cheery would date. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I kind of want them all to meet up, to be honest. Like, I just think that would be the most delightful, awkward so or awkward. wonderful sort of, yeah, it would just be... Yeah, I'd watch a whole show of that, to be honest. Mm. All right, so to wrap up, we have one final question. And if you sent through a question or a comment and we haven't read it, thank you for sending it through. We just got such a high volume of great stuff, so we wish we could have included it all, but unfortunately we couldn't. Um, we did at one point consider doing like a little mini-series of doing this episode by episode, which some other podcasts have done, and we will link to those other podcasts in case you want more watch discussion. Uh, or if you want us to talk about it more, let us know. Um, so the final question comes from Wilkerin via Instagram. Would you like to see a second season? Yes, I would. Hire me to be on the writing team. Yeah. And me. I want to do it. I mean, you don't yeah. need, you don't need me, but, uh, but they set up so much and they, like I said, they've burned so much material from the books already, but I feel like there's still some cool shit they could do. That's very Pratchettian, you know, the first few books, he just sets up a bunch of shit and flails a bunch and then eventually finds his feet. And I believe that this series could do the same, but you do need me and you do need Ben on your writing team in order to make it work because we both get comedy. We both love Pratchett. We, I think we'd be great, great additions to, to making this shine. Take a chance. Film it in Australia. It'll be cheap. Yeah. Yeah. That's also a really good idea, to be honest. Uh, well, I, I guess my answer to that is I would like to see a second season if you, you both are writing on it. So. <laughs> someone, someone tweet any and all of the writers slash producers slash BBC America with, with this, with this. Look, we have to be honest. We know it's not going to happen because the Pratchett estate was not happy with how this turned out mm. or where it went. Mm. Um, they distanced themselves from it. Their only public comments have been fairly brief, but fairly clearly this is not what we wanted, but we didn't really have any choice. And they have since signed an exclusive deal with another production company to do, uh, quote unquote, more faithful adaptations. Now, 
how faithful, whether that works out, whether they ever actually materialize, because that was announced a couple of years ago and there's been no motion on that. Who knows? But uh, it seems fairly clear that's a nail in the coffin of any more of the watch, which mm. is is a shame. You know, I would love to see, because I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that, you know, everybody making this show was trying to make something they thought was great. Like nobody yeah. sat down to write this yeah. or act in it or do yeah. any of the design and thought, let's just make something that's got Terry Pratchett's name on it and make a million bucks. Like without even watching the interviews that I watched, that was fairly clear that there was a lot of love and passion that went into this. Yeah. I mean, it didn't quite work, but I mean, that I think is more speaks to some of the constraints and some of the high level decisions that were made. Too many cooks. Maybe too many cooks, maybe the long and torturous, you know, development hell journey that it seems to yeah. have gone through. But yeah, I, I feel like they've all tried their best. And if they had another season and if they knew they were going to get another season and they had a bit more space, yeah. I think that would have helped things immensely. Hugely. Yep. But look, I, that kind of brings us to the end. Um, we could have gone on a lot more deep. I mean, I, I wrote like a stupid number of pages. No, I think it's like 40 pages of notes in this notebook. Uh, spin off, spin off. <laughs> we, um, we, well, all right. Uh, look, if you do want us to do a spin off, let me know. Maybe I'll do it one day, but I want to thank both of you, Fury and Patrick for coming. Um, thank you for being guests on the podcast. Um, you've both got some cool stuff happening. Patrick, you've recently published your latest book of short stories. It's yes, called that's right. Sexy Tales of Paleontology. What can you tell us about this? It's all comedy stories. It's all stories of heartbreak. And it's all stories of science gone wrong. If you had to pick a story that you think someone who wanted to like the watch but didn't quite get there would enjoy, is there a story <laughs> for them in the in the book, do you think? Yeah, there's probably a couple, but there's um, the titular Sexy Tales of Paleontology is a story about a paleontologist who gets kicked out of a think tank and teams up with an archaeologist to get revenge um, on the think tank. And they use everything that they know about dinosaurs, which is dinosaurs, to get that revenge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that sounds awesome. That's been published by Subdin. So you should go to your local bookshop and ask them to order in Sexy Tales of Paleontology by Patrick Lenton. Thank you, Patrick. Yes, please. And Fury, you mentioned this at the top of the show. You've just written your first episode for television. Yeah, um, hugely exciting. And this is a show that's currently in production. What can you tell us about it? What's it called? It's called Crazy Fun Park. It's with Werner Productions. And the showrunner is called Nick Verso. He's a bit of a genius. And yeah, it was interesting. I was given a trans character to work with. So it's a young adult-ish show. It's sort of old ABC Kids audience. And I really wanted to write a normal kids story with a trans twist. So I didn't want it to be about being trans. In particular because the show is really about grief and loss and death. So it's, it's not, it's, it, it holds the lightness and the darkness really well, I think. But yeah, so I didn't want there to be like a trans misery story. So I, we got there in the end. It was a bit of a slog, a really hard thing to do, hard line to walk, but we got there in the end and I'm really excited to see how it turns out. That's amazing. So that's crazy fun park. Do you know when and, and where that's going to emerge? No, especially not given COVID, you know, but from what I understand, it's my episodes filming in March. So fingers crossed soon, you know, who knows? I don't. <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye out for it and we'll definitely Thank update you. our episode notes so that yeah, if do. you're listening to this in the future, listener, and this show is available, you'll know where to find it. Uh, but <laughs> thank you once again, Fury and Patrick, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for having us. 
And of course, thank you, listener, for traveling with us. If you watched the series to <laughs> watch it along with us, we hope you had fun. We know at least uh, one of you did. Um, we hope a few more people did. Uh, maybe this discussion has convinced you to watch it if you couldn't or if you hadn't before. Let us know what you think. There's obviously a lot of fan outcry when it came out. A lot of people were unhappy. But I hope our sort of nuanced, mixed discussion uh, might lead some of you to check it out because I, I do think it's a lot of fun for all its flaws. Um, whether this has helped you decide what to watch it or not to watch it, um, thank you for listening. I tried to come up with a definitive answer because we've been asked quite a lot in the questions, should I watch it? And the answer is maybe, which I realize is frustrating <laughs> because um, there's a lot to enjoy and there's a lot to hate and it depends on what you're looking for in a series because I absolutely, on a personal level, would not have pushed through episode one if we hadn't been doing it for the podcast. I would have watched it all, but Ben also reassured me that it got better and he was absolutely correct. I think the thing that helped me ultimately enjoy it to a degree, despite all its flaws, was being able to distance it from the books and thinking of it as, like they say, inspired by the characters. And I think I would have liked it more if they had almost entirely different names, but then they would have been too similar to the things. So it, it occupies a weird space of almost being... Like, too faithful, not faithful enough. It needs to be a bit further away, but if it's further away, then it's yeah. still too close. So it's complicated. You need to sort out your own brain space around it in order to enjoy it or not. Yeah, it's like uncanny Vimesy. You know? it's, uh, <laughs> Civil disobedience. It's in that, <laughs> it's in that weird space. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. But I, I will say, if you've got access to a streaming service that it's on, I would recommend checking it out. There is a lot of fun to be had, particularly if you, if hopefully this has primed you to go in expecting something different. But I would say, watch the first two episodes in one go. That's how it was released here. And I think that helped me a lot. I mean, I still think there's a lot to like in that first episode, but it is it's very silly. I, anyway, Basically, I enjoyed it as a bunch of separate moments punctuated by bits that didn't make sense and that weren't up to scratch but there's enough yeah. individual things that i was like it was worth watching it for me i think yeah definitely oh i'm very glad i watched it and i've enjoyed watching it again watching it again gives you the space to pick up on a lot of the easter eggs that because it moves pretty fast you do miss the first time through and we might look i might even put a, a list in the notes of, of just some of my favorite little easter eggs if you've got some you want to point out to us i know at least one listener uh, hello, as you and sneezed, has made quite a list. I would love to see your list. Please share it with us. And speaking of lists, something that we've been doing that's a bit different, like obviously we have the book that we're reading for each month for the podcast, but I'm trying to get back into a bit more reading. So Lisa, I don't even know if I've talked to you about this yet, but I have launched a reading challenge for Pratt Chat for this year. I've tried to keep it brief because it, this is books in addition to the ones that you read for the podcast itself. But we've got a series of six prompts. We've put it onto Storygraph, which is a, a new kind of reading tracking website app. But also we're going to share those prompts publicly. So if you're not using that app, it doesn't matter. You can still join in. And it's basically six sort of prompts to read things that are not Pratchett, but maybe have connections with Pratchett that you might enjoy. So I'm going to share that a bit more widely, I think. And if any of you join in and you're reading books, we'd love to hear what books you pick. I would love to know what books you pick for that, Liz. And maybe that's something we can talk about on a future episode of the Ook Club mm. bonus podcast for subscribers. But for those of you who listen to this podcast, what's coming up next, Liz? We've done The Watch. What could possibly follow that? Maybe The Night Watch. <laughs> of course. Yes, yes we're going to look at one of the main inspirations for this show. I mean, you say main inspirations. They didn't really take that much no. from that book. Left all the good stuff like on the table. Yeah. I mean, they had a bit of time travel, but it didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, it was yes, wasted so time travel. But anyway, yes, we're going to read Night Watch. 
which we know is going to be a big one. It's a lot of people's favorite book. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. I've already started rereading it. So if you want to ask us questions about it, please do. You can do that on social media using the hashtag Pratchat53. Or you can email us at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. But until next time, may all your goblins get unionized. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guests Patrick Lenton and Fury. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat52. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.